We are, are uh, wrapping up our workshop season uh, tonight uh, with uh, Michael Scott's uh, Startup Secrets series. I can't say that. Um, he has been uh, a phenomenal contributor to the iLab, so I do need to take a moment to thank Michael for all, for all his hard work and everything he's contributed to the iLab. His workshops, um, as you know if you've been to any of them, are incredibly amazing and uh, they're so content rich and it's um, hitting upon all of the important components of starting a company, so incredible resource that we have. So thank you, Michael. Um, and so I'm just going to quickly turn it over to him so he can uh, get through all of this amazing content. Um, if uh, you are here for the first time, Michael Scott, serial entrepreneur, very successful, turned venture capitalist, um, has a tremendous uh, amount of knowledge in this space and uh, is uh, incredibly wise when it comes to what it takes to start a company. So I will turn it over to Michael Scott. I always feel like after Jody's introduced me, it's all going to be downhill from there. It's, uh, it's hard to live up to that kind of introduction, but hopefully we're going to have a lot of fun this evening. And I do feel like uh, this is going to be the most fun of the sessions because we've got such great guests, but also because it's a wrap up in many ways. And a lot of the elements that we've talked about in the other pieces of the startup series are going to come together tonight. Uh, now, that doesn't mean to say that for those of you who weren't here for those other sessions, you're going to be left out. And I'm going to explain how you can get access to all that content too, thanks to the ILAP uh, and the great work that they're providing here. But first of all, um, very importantly, I want to welcome our guests. Um, so one of them is at least uh, planned to be late, but uh, the other three are here. So we are lucky enough to have an alphabetical order from Aperion, Mark Lorian. Um, and he was uh, previously uh, SVP over at uh, Spotfire and, and working as part of the TIBCO group. So Mark, if you just want to raise a hand and say hi so everybody knows who you are, uh, welcome. Uh, we have from Demandware, uh, James Driscoll, who's our head of marketing there. And James will be uh, no, no uh, uh, surprise to some of you who've seen his great work at the iLab before. Uh, and then our guest tonight from um, HubSpot, our CEO, Brian Halligan. Brian, if you just want to raise a hand so everybody knows who you are too. Uh, welcome. So delighted to have you here. Um, a bit of fun later on. My brother actually hopefully will show up when he gets through traffic. Is going to cover one of his favorite subjects, uh, which is part of the building a sales and marketing machine. So I think you'll really enjoy that too. So between us, what we're going to try to do is to bring to life a framework around uh, what the various different elements are of building a go-to-market strategy. But it's a huge subject, and so uh, I just want to make sure that you know uh, all of this content is available in much more detail uh, on the website. And uh, I've had a lot of questions over the last few weeks from many of you who've attended the previous workshops about how do you find what content, when's it updated, and all of that. So I'm going to take you through a quick tour of that. And by the way, uh, lest I forget it, those of you who want to tweet about our guests, uh, all their Twitter handles are there, and the usual iLab stuff's always up the top, so you can get at that stuff. Okay, so a quick tour on the website itself, um, and uh, forgive me while we uh, take a moment on this. You basically, if you go to uh, the site, you can find absolutely anything by going to the top menus, and under Startup Secrets is every single one of the labs. So for example, if you went to the Go to Market section, you will find a write-up which I've actually printed out for you tonight to make it nice and easy. Um, but at the top of that write-up is the URL if you want to go to it online. And the idea here is that there's way more content being built now than we can actually capture in one session. So for example, for those of you who were here last year uh, for the series, uh, we had a number of other great guests who covered things such as brand, uh, channel, and distribution. We also talked about some of the key areas uh, such as, for example, how this relates to your business model and so forth. All of that is available as resources on that page, 
And I'm not going to cover those tonight. Uh, we're going to instead get into fresh material from our current guest stars. And so you'll find that detail here, and I'll refer to it where I can. But the idea is that we'll get more and more content up there. For those of you who want to keep checking, uh, we'll put a sign-up form, because I've had that request from people, so you can get uh, uh, notified when there is new content. So thanks for all the interest. I really appreciate it. There's been a lot of fantastic comments back. We'll try to respond to them all on the site uh, and keep the content coming. And thanks to our guests for contributing more this evening. OK, let's jump in. So always, um, as you've probably heard me say, the goal of these Startup Secrets series is to provide you a framework. So that's not the answers, and nor is it the detail of everything that you might do to build a go-to-market strategy. In fact, as you probably have heard me say if you've been here before, what I really tried to do with this series was to think about what would it have been like if 30 years ago as an entrepreneur I could have got some mentorship from somebody who could fast forward me through all the mistakes I made. And believe me, there were plenty of those. There's plenty of scar tissue to prove that. Um, but instead could actually share with me some frameworks to think about the things that might be worth you know, challenging myself to plan ahead of time uh, to deal with as a startup. And so in the go-to-market uh, space, it's a pretty big framework. It turns out this is a pretty big part of the execution for most startups. Now I'll say ahead of time that this is a framework that's mostly based around my own experience of B2B and mostly in software. But as most of you have fed back to me, there are a number of you, um, for example, who want to do not-for-profit uh, and NGO type things and, and have interests in a broader sense. So we've got case studies on that. Uh, for example, Diagnostics for All, who was here for one of the, the workshops, that case study is up on the site now. Uh, we also had, if you remember, one laptop per child, for those of you who are here, that case study is going up shortly. Uh, and I'll continue to build the not-for-profit and other case studies. And I want to thank people like Alok and encourage others of you who are in the audience who want to contribute to those case studies to come share them with me. Uh, we'll put them into the framework and we'll try to bring this to life uh, for those of you who are doing this in a not-for-profit way. But what I will tell you is a very simple thing in this framework. There's basically a cycle that people go through of figuring out how to find you from awareness all the way through how to purchase you. And that's what's on the left-hand side. And there are basic tools associated with that. The old world used to be all about um, outbound marketing. And we're really excited to have Brian Halligan, whose firm HubSpot was one of the pioneers in the whole science of inbound marketing, which didn't even exist when I was you know, embarrassed to admit my age here, you know, back 31 years ago starting my companies. But that's the point about this. This is a living, breathing thing. And, and there's no answer here. It's just some things to think about. So we're going to talk tonight consistently about you know, what's the way to, to optimize as a startup the inbound versus outbound. Uh, and again, we're lucky enough to have Mark Lorian here who's going to actually post, well, we actually have posted already, his case study on outbound, because there isn't time to go through it all tonight. But what we said was there's a bare minimum of things we wanted you to think about. And these are they. First of all, you really need to think about what your brand is and what you represent. So we're going to cover that. Secondly, you've got to figure out you know, what channel do you want to take that through. And again, that's almost invariably figuring out where you're going to focus on target segments of the marketplace that you can be successful in. And then I'm going to cover a couple of startup secrets that I learned the hard way around personas and really getting very clear about who you're dealing with at what stage in the sales cycle. And then the bottom line, which is really quite fun, gets a lot of focus this evening intentionally, which is it's all very well to be executing on your marketing program, but the hardest part about marketing is often measuring it. It's actually figuring out what's effective. And there are many famous quotes about this, uh, but I'll just get to the bottom line here. There is no substitute for measuring and iterating on your marketing program. So we'll talk a little bit about how you do that and how you might measure it 
and what are some of the ways that you can make this effective for you. So that's our framework for tonight, and uh, it breaks down into the following agenda. Uh, we're going to start with some strategic things like the brand and positioning, uh, and then we're going to get into some tactical things like how to run that marketing and sales cycle, and then we're lucky enough to have, as I said, a couple of guests to talk through some of the execution of this. All right, jumping right in then. We talked about this in the first workshop. Your brand is one of the most important things that you can define very early on in a startup. But the question is why? And for many, uh, for many people, it's as obvious as, well, your brand is obviously what you want people to recognize you for. Well, if you're Coke, that's very easy. But if you're a startup and you're Joe Blow Enterprises, then you know, it's not that easy. And in fact, presenting a business card as a startup is the first challenge you have, is that you don't have credibility until you build that brand. So how can you get effective? And what I'm going to suggest here is that this is really a science unto itself. Um, this is, in fact, something that you really have to think hard about in the same way that you think about, are you a Diet Coke or are you a Diet Pepsi lover? Do you buy Apple or you buy Dell? And what do you want to represent? Do you want to represent yourself as the premium brand with high margins, or do you want to represent yourself as the you know, high uh, volume, low margin brand? And there are many different things that fall out of that. Like I said, this is a big subject. Uh, so this is one of the pieces of content that we're not going to go into in depth tonight. This is on the website. Uh, we covered it in depth last time. So you'll find a full explanation of this. you also find us talking about some of the fun brands in the consumer world like Nike, uh, some of the ones in the tech world like Zipcar. So that's all online. And it's, uh, you can go to it from that handout I gave you. The things I want to point out tonight uh, that are easy for us to just think about and that will tee up our first guest, which is Jameis from Demandware, is that Almost all of us have heard of the idea of a vision. And for those of you who are here for that company formation session, we talk about it in depth. Well, brand does start with your vision, although the slightly different thing in the brand world is it's really about what are you changing in the world? What is it that you're trying to make an impact with? A little bit different than how are you building your company, although the two, of course, are very closely aligned. And then the second key part is the promise. What do we promise to customers at the most fundamental level? So what is, if you're think about, thinking about this, something that we've covered that, that might add to this? Value proposition. And we covered the value proposition in that whole workshop. So the value proposition relates very closely to promise. And then the piece that gets very interesting and, and exciting that James is going to bring to life is the attributes of your brand. What actually makes this a brand that people can get behind? And ultimately, that's expressed in emotion, personality, and style. So I've gloss, gloss, uh, sorry, glossed over that quite quickly, intentionally, because we're going to bring it to life, as I said, with um, you know, what Jameis said. But I do want to bring out one key thing that I hope will help every one of you as a startup. There's a starting point that's really, really simple. It's about you. That is to say, you, the founders, are going to be the brand, whether you like it or not, by the way. Um, so get ready for that. I mean, people will identify the startup of you as what you bring to the, the, uh, the marketplace, especially when you don't have a product initially and you're going out effectively to pitch yourself. So think about how you, the founders, your team, and your culture, and some of the things that we talked about in the company formation session can be embodied in your brand. Because it's actually one of the most truly realistic and authentic parts of what becomes a startup's brand. And so thinking about that early will help you formulate what it is that people will take away from you. And then how you execute is actually what people will measure you on. You know, you can claim all the things you want in the world, but if you don't deliver on high value, for example, nobody's going to uh, attribute that 
uh, to your brand. Likewise, if you don't deliver on great customer service and you're trying to make that as a promise, that's not going to be consistent. And we'll talk about how that important that is. So to bring this to life, I happen to be in the boardroom uh, of a public company of mine, Demandware. And so I'm going to tell you right now, because it's public, we can't disclose all of this information on the site. Uh, and we had a real live case study. Sure enough, uh, we were at the Demandware board meeting, and we were talking about a company that's now you know, an eight-year overnight success, having gone public this year, could evolve its, its brand. What could we do to move the needle now that we've become a substantive company uh, with market leadership position to really accelerate the next stage of our brand? So with that, I'd like to introduce Jameis to uh, bring it to life and tell us how did he do it. Thank you, Michael. Uh, can everyone hear me okay? It's a chronic fear as a marketer that you're not heard, so it's the kind of thing that I like to check whenever I start talking. Um, so thank you for the intro. Uh, I'm here to talk about a, a living case study. So this is ongoing right now. And um, what I want to do is take you through some of the rationale that we had about our branding and take you through some of the you know, analysis that we did and then ultimately show you a couple of instances about how we're starting to execute it. Um, and the execution is not yet live, so you guys are going to get a sneak peek at a lot of this. Bounce this along one more. Good. So, um, as Michael said earlier, er early stage when you're a smaller organization, it's very easy to sort of deal with branding, particularly when you're in a marketing organization of just a couple of people, because you are the brand and you can make these brand choices along the way. Um, and you just sort of know instinctively whether something's what you want to represent or not. But as you grow as an organization, and as in, in our case, we've got a much larger platform now with a much larger microphone, it was time for us to look back and really uh, institutionalize the brand. You know, what are the brand attributes of us that we wanted to build equity around as we execute in lots of different markets? And so what we did is we looked back at um, and did an analysis with our customers and the broader market to get a sense for what are the attributes that we're known for, and also what are the challenges that we have in the marketplace, and what are the things that we're trying to get done. And I'd summarize it simply by saying that we're here to try and change the criteria in the buying cycle. So Demandware, in this case, as an e-commerce platform company, was selling into a market where there was already a sort of a software space. But we were doing this in a very different way, which was to deliver this as an on-demand service. So our goal in our marketing and in our branding is to help the market change its mind and change its perspective about how it evaluates us and thinks about us. So this is overall for us about how do we build on what we've done and change the, change the criteria. You know, for us, it was about, and I'm not going to go through each one of these things, but a sense of both moving from how we had marketed in the past and also how buyers thought about it to this new set of things that we wanted them to consider, you know, from cost to advantage, uh, from managing software to growing the business, um, from mid-sized companies to really the sense of high-growth brands. And so our challenge was how do we then sort of move from the left-hand side all the way over to the right and get people to think about things differently. When we did an analysis of the market, what we saw uh, was that everybody, for the most part, was playing in the blue boxes, um, where everyone was talking about either e-commerce or technology and talking about it as either features or benefits. And occasionally, we'd see people that would move into the upper right and the, upper, uh, the lower right and the upper left. But what there is was this great opportunity in the green squares, where there was this intersection of what are the rewards that individual buyers want? You know, what are their aspirations? What are their goals? And how do those align with the big objectives of these large retail organizations, which is really around the brand and their marketing? So what's that intersection between the reward for the individual and the broader objectives of the business? 
And that's where we saw and think there's a, a, a tremendous opportunity to brand the company differently. So I'll explain that a little bit more. What this meant for us was we needed to move around and move beyond some of the broad claims that we were making in the marketplace and really substantiate them. Not just move on the claims of our software, but also talk about what it was going to do for individuals personally. We think one of the great opportunities in enterprise software now is to start talking about the emotional side of software. Right? What does software allow someone to do to fulfill their own dreams, their own ambitions, their own goals? Uh, we think about this in consumer technology all the time. Apple, of course, is the case study for this where we use iPhones because they're cool. Well, couldn't enterprise software be cool? You know, we're spending a lot of time as buyers here, and this is we're making strategic bets here. Couldn't we make enterprise software something that individual buyers would aspire to and want? And the ultimate success of that would be if they were in the cocktail party or talking to their peers and they were saying, you know, I'm using demandware, right? And that was that sign of sort of personal expression. So to get to that level of sort of emotional connection to buyers, we wanted to position the company around a lot of their ambitions and goals and dreams to sort of get to that word of mouth and sense of pride uh, that people have when they're really connected to a product. So one of the things that we looked at was when it comes to positioning branding, it's not just about you know, how the customer feels about you, but how does the product or how does the brand make them feel about themselves? And so in the case you see here, here's a, you know, a kitten looking in a mirror and seeing a lion. We want the buyers to sort of have that sense of you know, what they think about themselves is reflected back uh, based on the selections that they make. Right? So that's what we're trying to get to. And Michael talked earlier about the actors. We look at it as sort of somewhat um, who are the actors that we see in the buying cycle from the head of e-commerce to the CEO or CMO to IT or finance. Um, you know, and what are their sort of rational reasons for buying? Um, you know, there's a long-standing axiom in, in marketing, which is people buy on emotion but justify with fact. So these are generally the facts that people think about when they justify a purchase. Um, whether it's uh, finance wants better economics or the CEO is talking about the growth of the business. But what they're really thinking about are sort of the emotional quotient behind that. Right? What are the things that they really sort of want to feel about themselves? Whether it's IT wants to feel like they have a much stronger seat at the table or the e-commerce person wants to build their career to be able to move up to the CEO level or CEO really wants to be you know, thought of as a leader to watch. Our goal in the branding is to sort of attach ourselves to those aspirations that they have so that when they think about their career growth, they attach that to our brand. Okay. So our brand promise, the, you know, the pillar on which we're really building, comes down to this concept of potential, right? That we as a, a company and a, a provider are, are the means that they're going to use to achieve whatever their dreams are, right? Their potential as individuals, their potential as brand. We want them to think about us as the canvas on which they're going to write that or paint that masterpiece. So that's largely what's behind our brand strategy is to attach ourselves to their dreams. So the customer benefits from this in a couple different ways. You know, when e-commerce traditionally has been you know, thought of with very big software infrastructure and laborious processes, what we're coming to is a sense of, look, if you, if you can think it, you can do it. If you have an idea, you can put it into action. Right? No matter, there's no limits, there's no worries, there's no, no, no surprises. There's a sense of, if you have a dream, you can do it. 
and the sense that freedom and give people the give the buyers the sense that geez this is this is the right thing for me to invoke all my great dreams I just need the right tools for that so our promise um, rests on really four basic pillars and I'm not going to walk through each one in detail but the sense of innovation we can help them uh, innovate faster and better simplicity it's not hard it's easy partnership we're in it with them for the long haul and performance and that we're here to support their ongoing success so underneath each of that of that major promise is this four are four major pillars if 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 you will that we continue to pivot to and articulate to let them know that this is what underpins what we do and why we make the claims we do So I'm going to skip a little bit into some of the sort of advertising and give you a sneak peek on how this brand is starting, is starting to roll out. If you go to our website now, you'll see it's very black, right? But so now you're going to see a couple of different colors. And I'm going to explain in concept a couple of things that we're doing here to sort of bring that brand to life. First, you'll notice is the colors, green and gray. Green as innovation, growth. Gray as steel, strength. Um, you'll notice that the customer's brand imagery is portrayed heavily. It's not about us, it's about the customer's brand. So you'll see that everywhere in all of our, our ads and our, our marketing is, it's not about us, it's about them. And in the language here we have is, well, you'll see a pattern coming up, which is the customer always comes first. Their brand and their comparative verbs, which is whatever they view as Im important to them, those are the verbs we use. Comparatively, we do it better, we help them do it better. With is a statement of partnership. And we come last, right, as the partner. So this is a repetitive formula that we use in all of our, our marketing to sort of help convince and show the brand that it's about them, it's about their brand, it's about their goals, and we're here as an enabling partner. We're here to help them amplify whatever it is that they want. In a new website that you'll see soon, this is starting to roll out even more. So the statement you'll see on the, on the homepage is, great brands have great ideas. We help make them possible, right? So it's that sense of complimenting the user, complimenting the viewer, complimenting them on the strength of their brand and what their ambition is, and just to let them know that if they want that, we're the partner for them. And more examples of that that I showed earlier, um, you know, Perry Ellis or Land Zen, these are all the comparatives that we're starting to roll out. Now, what we think is a position of strength for us is these brands are willing to let us use their brand, which is pretty rare in software. So instead of us talking about our features and our functions, we're here to show who are the partners that we work with and how they're willing to let us use their brand, which is a tremendous statement of, of partnership, and that rings loudly in the marketplace. So in summary, what, what I'd say is when you think about branding, um, a lot of times we often, as marketers, stop at features and benefits, and we think that's where it, it goes. Um, the ultimate measure of this is when you get to the reward, right? What is the emotional quotient that a buyer looks at? Because um, that's the thing that really people sort of resonate with, and it creates this sort of emotional connection. People always justify with fact, but when you sort of strike the emotional chord, it, it's a tremendous advantage, and that's really where the power and strength of brand comes from. Okay. Terrific. Thank you very much, Seamus. So what's great about that, hopefully, is it brings to life some of the real challenges. But I'm sure all of you would love to fast forward straight to the point that Jameis says to be able to talk about customers as partners to you. But the reality is many of us are going to start 
in a very different place. We aren't even going to have our first customers. And so where do you start? If you haven't even got a customer, maybe you haven't even got a product, and you've got to figure out how to get to that pl place that uh, Jameis was articulating so clearly there. Well, before I give you that answer, I just want to point out something. That actually, uh, the demandware promise was made very early on. Uh, you know, literally, as I said, eight years ago. And it wasn't really any different. It's just that we didn't have the customers to back it up. So we made a lot of those same brand promises and had many of those same attributes around simplicity, empowerment, et cetera. It's just that we've now reached a point where we can actually talk about them with a customer viewpoint and customer voice and bring that emotion to the fore. So let's jump to what you might think about. It's one word, consistent. Startups think they've got to have 10 different things that they go sell in order to sort of overcome the customer's objection. Actually, the opposite is true. What you want is to find the one simple thing it's often referred to that a customer can attach to that they say, wow, okay, that's different. So we're going to talk about that in, in different forms tonight. But the point being at the start, if you can pick at the earliest point in, play, in, in time in your business what it is that you're going to represent and stick with it consistently, then the more likely it is that it will actually resonate with people. So we've already talked about this. There are values that you probably have built in your culture. Those things we talked about, for example, does cust do your customers come first, do people come first? Do you stand for service, for example? Or do you stand for technology? These are key decisions that you make early on. You can bring these into your brand very early on, and you can make them part of how you represent yourself. Then what comes out of this, which is so important, I've mentioned it already in terms of execution, is that if you are reliably delivering on those promises, you will get known for being a simple and obviously highly disruptive vendor if you're enabling new capabilities. And so the trick here is for you to identify these things on as, as, as early as possible and to try to stick with them as be, and be as consistent as possible. That's the one thing that a startup can be accountable for right from the get-go. Now, for those of you who weren't here at the uh, culture workshop, there's a whole section where we talk about values and teasing them out, and it's a fun thing to do. I actually recommend that you do the same thing for this, except not internally. You go and do it externally. Go spend some time with your first select set of customers and have the discussion with them about what are the things that they actually are looking for that are not represented in the marketplace that you might be bringing to them that will stand out as the first set of values that w makes them want to do business with you. So that's the mistake I usually find startups doing. Is they're doing this in the lab, whereas what you want to be doing is doing this in the field and asking your customers what's missing. If you can do that, and if you can pull out some of the items, uh, sorry, the attributes and the, the opportunities that are out there and distill them into something that is authentically what you can bring to market and that you're going to represent, you're going to be starting in a good place. So hopefully that makes sense as a first startup secret. Now to put this in perspective, um, I have a second startup secret with you, for you, which is start how you mean to end. Who recognizes that logo? This is a test to see who's awake. <laughs> All right, dumb question. Hopefully everybody does, although it has changed, but not much, right? All it's done is lost its color. Believe it or not, Apple started their branding statement in 1977. That's a long time ago. It even predates me, which is kind of cool. Uh, so the fun part about this is actually I remember this discussion very well when we were all you know, going through the process of figuring out how to launch my first company, which was you know, selling applications on the Apple II. 
which was, you know, so how do we relate to this thing? You know, what, what is Apple all about? Well, they had this one magical term. Any of you heard the word impute? Anybody care to, to, to uh, mention what impute means? Anybody know? I'd never heard of it. I had to go look it up. But it turns out it's been critical in Apple's branding. Impute is basically saying that whatever your product or service is, Apple will impute the value of it, which means immediately make you aware of the value of it. And so if you notice when you open an Apple product, even the packaging is imputing the value of Apple's product being clear and simple and very straightforward and right out of the box delivering value. That's what they're trying to impute. They're trying to make sure right from the get-go, one of their brand promises, which is this just instant value, comes across from the packaging. So I'm not saying you have to be Apple. But the point is, Apple didn't go back 10 years later and say, oh, we should you know, impute the value of our products and make everything simple. Right from the get-go, they made that decision. And Mike Markler, who actually uh, did this, uh, was very key in the early stages, even though Jobs always gets the recognition, in bringing this discipline into Apple. And if you read the story, which is a fun one, you'll see that it really reflected quite significantly early on in even product design. And that's, of course, what we're here to talk about, is how does it reflect in everything you do? So hopefully that's given you a, a sense of why brand is important and why it's very strategic and where you might start, uh, which is hopefully with a vision to where you'll end. So let's move on to our second section. This one is actually, I think, very straightforward, but at the same time also very fundamental. It's all about positioning. Now, hands up who thinks that they could uh, position their startup absolutely uniquely today? Anybody? Go ahead. Way to do compensation. You've got a new way to do compensation. Do you have any competitors? Uh, not that we're aware of that are direct competition. Okay. That is a very valid statement. Now let me ask you another question. And by the way, thank you for being so bold to step up. I always appreciate it. Um, are, there, are there people solving the problem of compensation in the marketplace today? Are there people solving the same problem as you today in the marketplace? Uh, yes, there are. Okay. So there are other players. Does the customer have suddenly a new budget, therefore, for what you're doing, or are they going to have to find money from an existing budget? Uh, they will have to find money from an existing budget where an incremental improvement on what's out there and already there now. Okay. You have said we are cutting, helping them cut costs, so we're actually a cost-saving proposition rather than a spending proposition. Very helpful. Okay. So thank you very much. Uh, what I'm going to do is... Uh, just take that example and tell you this is the biggest challenge I hear over and over again with startups, which is, in other words, it's, you're not unique in this, in this problem. We think we've got something unique, but guess what? We're in a category that already exists where there's a finite amount of dollars that we've got to compete for. That basically means we're going to fight it out with everybody. So this section is all about, well, how do you actually avoid fighting it out with everybody? Let's see where you can answer your question. What you're trying to do in the first part of positioning is occupy a distinct place in a potential customer's mind. So if the customer can, can identify that what you do is unique, you're in a great place. But if they say, oh, there's 10 other vendors who help with compensation, we've got a challenge. And that's where you go on to the second thing, which is to say, well, what unique white space can I find in the marketplace? Now, for those of you here in the value prop session, we actually spent a bunch of time discussing this. And so I'm not going to go through this all again. You can find it again on the website. We talked about how can you write that out in a way that at least positions you for a unique set of customers with a product that is differentiated, that does something that's not been done before, 
unlike the other competitors and talks a little bit about the whole product, in other words, the entire solution that you delivered to, to make that possible. So with that in mind, I want to bring Mark up uh, from his experience at Spotfire uh, and as part of the TIBCO organization to talk a little bit about how did he do this, and then I'll come and generalize it and try to address uh, your opportunity. Mark, welcome. Thank you, Michael. Um, <clears throat> you know, positioning statements like this, they, they may look academic when you're in the audience looking at these frameworks, but I can tell you they're far from academic. You really do need to, to get a handle on how you're going to, you know, how do you want to position and how do you want to differentiate your, your product or solution out there. And I think you should go through this early and often, frankly, you know, particularly when, you know, when you're forming, when you're launching. When you're pivoting, a lot of organizations, you know, when you start a startup, you know, the, the ultimate path that you're on is very unlikely to be the one that you start on. So when you sense that the organization is going to go through a change, is going to try to reach a different market, a different buyer, come up with a new solution, I think it's good and healthy to go through these, these sorts of exercises. In fact, <clears throat> I'm going through uh, one with a new management team that I'm on tomorrow. I've been uh, with one of Michael's portfolio companies for about two weeks. And our organization is going through a pretty significant pivot. You know, we're changing the profile and the persona that we go after. So what do you think happens? These things unwind, right? When you, when you, when you try to reach a new buyer, you're thinking about the value that you offer. You have to go through and think about each line. Each word in this framework should be meaningful and mean something. And I think when you get it right, they're so aligned with the opportunity and the, the value that you're conveying in the market and differentiation over a competitor, that if you were to read it from a competitor's standpoint, the whole thing would fall apart. It wouldn't make sense. So Mark, just to give people a bit of a, an opportunity to get a sense of it, what did Spotfire do and, and why was this tough for you and how did you solve the, the problem here? Yeah, good question. So Spotfire um, was a private company. We were acquired by TIBCO in 2007. Um, about 2005, we went through a very significant pivot. I had recently joined the company. Uh, we were targeting mostly scientific users in the data visualization space, right? So we were selling to small teams of people, scientists, you know, people in corners of organizations. We wanted to pivot and go after the executive ranks. We wanted to sell into the business intelligence space, which had, um, you know, bigger budgets, bigger dollars. We believe we could get more scale. We thought the product itself would be able to serve those needs. But we were virtually unknown in that space. Anybody who knew that brand thought about us as a scientific and a, technical, and a technical product. And as often as the case as founders or early stage people, you love the features. So people tend to gravitate to talking about what the product or the solution does, not what it does for the target buyer. So when you go through exercises like this, you want to think about who are we really, really trying to reach. There may be a number of personas, but you have to pick one. You can't segment too tight, especially in an early stage organization. So who are we trying to go after? What keeps them up at night? What are they dissatisfied with that's going to be enough for them to call us back or to do a web search to try to find us or to respond to a, an outbound you know, email or call or something like that? How is our approach different than the competition? What lines can we take that our nearest competitor can't? And as Michael had pointed out, often when you're an early stage company, you're solving things that are being approached by other companies as well. 
and we've just got a different take on it. And for us, we were going up against Cognos and Business Objects and Hyperion, really well-funded organizations, you know, big marketing budgets. We were never going to get there by saying that we were another business intelligence tool. We took a slightly different angle, which was around focusing on the value of decisions that people would make in our product. Using Spotfire, we could help people make better decisions. And that was the value statement. And I'd say, you know, Jameis's points were right on. That was the elements of the brand. We were fun to use, we were easy, we would enable users to make better, smarter decisions in every corner of the company. And that's what we ended up really focusing on the, you know, on this, on the positioning statement. And we as a management team fought through this thing. It was ugly. And Thank you very much, Mark. Okay. So hopefully that gives you, yeah. And by the way, the business intelligence space that um, Mark was competing for was a very, very noisy space with very big players. And yet, Mark's team was very successful at finding their unique positioning and being very successful at building the business around it. Yeah, question. Did you have to rebrand it to, so that people now thought of Spotfire as something for the business and for the research scientists? Oh, or yes. Not? Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we did, there was definitely a rebranding effort, for sure. And I think, you know, going through the same sort of process <coughs> that, that, uh, that Jameis had, had outlined. But for me, it started here. We weren't going to move forward until we had alignment on the management team here. When we did that, then we started going out in concentric orbits and talking with the organization. But everybody in the company was tested on this. Literally, the CEO would get in your face if you couldn't recite this, this framework. And I mean that. You have to believe it that strongly. And then things like branding and campaigns and programs fall in line. They're much easier to scale up because you're, you're kind of singing from the hymnal here, if you will. So back to that point earlier on, one of the things that this discipline provides is a consistent framework, again, that consistent word being the key one, for you to think about everything you do in your marketing, which is why I say bring it up so early on. Now, again, for those of you who weren't here for the value proposition session, we spent a ton of time talking about this framework and how you build the various different components of it. So that's up on the site, um, but this is how it ends up playing out in positioning. Now, I promised I'd answer the question for the gentleman who was bold enough to step up and say, you know, he's doing something unique in the uh, compensation world. But uh, I, would, I don't want to put this on you right away, and I wouldn't try to get you to instantly articulate it that way. Although if you want to, you're welcome to stand up and say how you might define that. Up to you. Do you want to take a try? I can try. Go for it. Um, it All right, let's go after. after for CEOs and upper management at uh, mid-size and large enterprise, who are having trouble driving behavior for their employees. Our approach is to integrate into existing meetings to calculate impact of every employee uh, using regular weekly uh, light minimal overhead approach uh, that I should actually segment it that calculates impact uh, in a way that everyone perceives as fair and can be connected to compensation. Unlike existing approaches, which include performance evaluation approaches that everybody hates, everybody likes our approach, uh, their setup is uh, a new approach to performance management and compensation uh, that <coughs> affords all participants a feeling of fair treatment, uh, improved engagement, and ultimately better performance for all uh, players. I, mean, I got to tell you, to pull that off in front of all you guys, 
you know, on the spot. That was very impressive. It really was. So thank you very much. I, I think you're going to do great. I, I don't know what I'm going to say at this point other than, you know, great, great starting point. It really is. Um, excellent. Well, here's the thing about this. You'll probably be doing it for the next five or six or seven or eight years <laughs> until finally you can stand up and people go, what's the name of your company, by the way? Fair Setup. Fair? Fair Setup. Fair Setup. Until everybody says, oh, yeah, Fair Setup. I know those guys. They do the best compensation system on the planet. And it'll happen. If you persist with that, I think you could get there. Uh, but that's ultimately what happens, right? If I say Coke to you, I don't have to explain anything about it being a soft drink or fizzy or tasty. You already know what it is. But it took a lot of money to get there. And so that's why what we're doing right now is we're trying to figure out how you get there uh, from the starting point that will make it most effective for you. So let me jump in and start to add some value, hopefully, as opposed to just asking audience the questions. The first thing that I see that startups miss is this. Everybody always thinks about that differentiation in terms of technology. It's great that you might have a technology differentiation. In many instances, it's a great starting point, especially if it's a highly disruptive technology. But it doesn't have to be just about technology. You could have some incredibly compelling differentiation just by figuring out a segment that's never been served before. So for example, compensation is extremely complicated in the insurance industry. There's a lot of different channels it goes through. There's a lot of different people have to take a piece out of it. And there's a lot of different ways that that calculation causes so many problems that it gave rise to a whole new set of companies. We don't have to go into all that example, but that was a uh, completely new segment that gave opportunity for the business you're in. I would recommend that any business try to find that first segment that nobody else is targeting. That could be your differentiation right there. The second thing is to find some kind of barrier to entry, because believe me, once the big guys figure out you're onto something interesting, they're going to come after you. So what is it that could be the barrier to entry? Again, most startups approach this and say, well, we've got a better technology. Great. But if it's just better, faster, cheaper, somebody's going to come after you and spend more money to figure out how to compete with you at scale. And so that isn't a good answer either. But what's interesting is that there are many things, and we've talked about one of them if you were in our business model session, that is very difficult for the existing incumbents to come after. In fact, the larger they are, the more likely they are to be titanically slow at responding. And one of them is business model. If you create a disruptive business model that creates a dis, uh, an innovator's dilemma, the great book I encourage you to read if you haven't read it from Clayton Christensen, you will see that this is an example where even independent of your technology, if you come, for example, with an open source solution the way our case study Acquia did at the last uh, discussion, and offer free versus where people are spending literally millions of dollars and therefore are becoming dependent as a business on getting millions of dollars from their sales force and in margin to support their overhead, you will disrupt them. Nothing to do with the technology, to do with the business model. And then last but not least, what we want to try to find is something that becomes sustainable to you. And again, what I hear a lot of the time is, well, we've got IP and patents. It's great. Nothing wrong with that. But I'll tell you, there are so many examples of where startups have better IP and even patents around it. But do you really have the energy and the resources to compete with an Apple or a Google or a Microsoft or whoever it might be in your, in your business, uh, Eli Lilly if you're you know, in the pharma space? No, you don't. And so even though you might have what it takes, are you really going to press it? Wouldn't it be better if you came at it with a completely different approach and you had, for example, the first network, because you'd given away your product free, of existing compensation users that was providing a completely different way to benchmark that nobody had ever done before and that gave you a competitive advantage compared to anybody else that was there because it was free, open, and now fully exploited. And your core IP ended up being 
not technology at all, but data. Completely different game. That would be defensible because nobody else had it. So I really encourage you not to get stuck in the trap of approaching everything with a technology bias, but instead to think about these key areas uh, as to how to define or redefine the competition in a way that puts you in a position to win. So how do you map that? Well, uh, again, for those of you here for the perfect pitch, I go into this in more detail, but it's up on the web again. Uh, what I like to do, particularly because we're at Harvard, by the way, is come up with a two by two uh, and think about the high-low. And this diagram's pretty simple. It's really about mapping your competitors. You might use, for example, bubble sizing to represent their relative size. Um, but the, Im the important point here becomes the axes. And the axes are always something that people put up in exact ways that we just talked about. Well, we're faster, or we're better, or we're cheaper. It's okay, but it doesn't work in the long run. What we want, however we get there, is to find this white space that nobody else is occupying. That's what we're talking about. I recommend the thing you really spend time on is this. It's the barriers. The barriers should literally cause the competition to say they can't move from where they are to where you are. So what's an example? Is your software SaaS? Yes. Okay. Every on-premises solution that's not architected for multi-tenant, remote development, customization, et cetera, is going to find it really hard to move into the cloud and be offered as a service. So on-premise and SaaS is a great example of a barrier. For anybody in the software world who knows what I'm talking about here, I can tell you it's very difficult. That is the entire premise on which a company called Demandware that just presented got to be worth you know, nearly a billion dollars. Why? Because the existing incumbents who were offering e-commerce stacks, which was a lot of technology that was sold on-premise, required people to go and build all that technology and customize it. And guess what? Retailers and merchants don't do that. What they spend their time doing is trying to distinguish their brand, merchandise, and market better. And they don't want to deal with all that technology. So that's all pain to them, whereas the gain should be getting straight online and customizing the site to their brand's look and feel. That's all Demandware did. One fundamental barrier between the two, though, which is one's on-premise and the other one is obviously uh, in the cloud. So those are the kinds of barriers we're looking for here. And you already got one, which is great. Obviously, if you can think of a couple, and I mentioned before, they might be business model, uh, or they might be different uh, axes here. Then that gives you a chance to put yourself in a position where you will be unique and defensible. Now, the white space thing is what we're going to talk about next. How do you find that white space? What is it that makes it possible for you to have some unique position. And this is really all about the third key part of the workshop, targeting and segmentation. So why is this important? Well, if I could define the perfect startup storm, it would look like this. You would have a disruptive business model the way we talked about in that session. You would certainly have a disruptive technology, but you would also have a new market and some great way to approach it in a go-to-market sense. And at the, at the middle of that, there would be a tremendous opportunity for you. But before I get into the opportunity, here's the piece that I want everybody to make sure they don't lose tonight. Most startups are really struggling with the amount of resource they have to go after any market. So let's ask the obvious question. Is it better to go after a big market or a small market? Anybody? Small? Small, yep. I'm not going to challenge you again, but yeah. Big, OK. Let's have uh, your viewpoint for big. If you're going to go into market and somebody's going to compete into this market, you'd rather take a big space and even if you occupy a meaningful uh, amount of it, it's, it's a substantial market for you. I think that's a great answer. 
You were going to say, somebody else say small? Go ahead. So it's small for a startup because if you can own that one small market, you know, you can start to tap into to other markets after you, you know, sort of broadcast your value proposition more. Very good. Yep, very good. Anybody else want to chime in before we, we move on? So obviously you've got two very different viewpoints there, right? I actually think they're both right, but the trick is to figure out how and where and when they're both right. So the real challenge is, is, as I posed right at the beginning, if you're a startup, you have very little resource to do a lot with. And so if you're going after a large market and you want to serve all the needs of a large market, you're going to be very, very challenged. Because no matter what anybody says, large markets will have diverse needs by definition. Very rare it's not the case. But if you can define a nice small segment, and that's the key word, so if I'd been fair, I would have said big market, small segment, then your product market fit, your packaging and pricing, your channels of distribution to reach it, and your messaging and communication can be that much more focused on those unique needs. And so you'll be much more effective with a limited amount of resources. Yet I will tell you, again, challenge each of yourselves to think about this early on, because it's one of the biggest problems I see with startups is they start way too broad, and then all of these things are challenged, not just building the right product, but then how do you price it and package it for all these different varieties of people within this big market? Also, how do you uh, pick the right channel point, uh, channel and distribution point to get it leveraged through? And what should be the messaging communication when all these different needs are out there? It's really tough. But if you can segment to the point where you've only got one uh, particular target, then you can message directly and so forth. And so that's why this is such an important model. And it's why I actually really want you to think about a new way of thinking about uh, this value prop as we talked about it before. All the things to recap that you were here, for those of you who were here, that we talked about, discontinuous, defensible, disruptive solutions, those all still apply. But you remember we said there are four U's, those of you who are here. Unworkable, unavoidable, urgent problems are the best to solve. And the last one was underserved, in an underserved market where there isn't a really good solution right now. Now if you put those back together again, what you end up with here is a model that is, right at the core of this, something that I think all start startups should look for. But I don't invent all the terminology in this world, and I'm sure many of you have read or heard of uh, Eric Ries's book, where he talks about the minimal viable product. So uh, the minimal viable product is something that obviously comes from figuring out what's the minimum you can do for your customer. But I would argue that the minimum viable segment is just as important. But the minimal viable segment overlap with your product will make it possible for you to target a much smaller area. And I don't hear anywhere near enough work going on in this area when I see startups getting going. They spend all their time saying, OK, how can we get the basic functionality right? But if you don't know who it's for, what does it mean? It doesn't mean anything. If you know exactly the persona of the person for whom you're solving that problem by segmenting this way, you can nail it. But this is usually left out. So, MVP is important, MVS is just as important. And I really encourage you to spend time understanding that. So what is a minimal viable segment? How do you get that? How do you find that? This is the next startup secret. It's one simple thing. It's a common set of needs. So a lot of people tell me, oh, no, no, I've got a segment. It's finance. Or even better still, I've figured it out within finance insurance. Okay? You know what, it might be that. but. What if those people in insurance have a completely different set of needs, you know, person to person? You probably haven't found a segment. 
But by contrast, I've seen some great products that span right across industries, you know, insurance, banking, and completely different applications, maybe even sales and marketing. But they have a common set of needs, and that might be, for example, very close customer intimacy. Might be as basic as that. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for a place where the customers, when they sit down and say, hey, did you use this product? They can say, yeah, I, I love that. And the common need kicks in and say, oh, well, I better try it then. And when you deliver on it, they reference each other and say, yeah, I had a fantastic experience. Then the next guy says, well, then I should try it. As opposed to, well, that's great, but doesn't meet my needs, so I, why should I bother trying it? And that's where the dissonance occurs, is if you haven't figured out your segment to be these same needs. But by contrast, if you get this working, you'll get this referenceability happening, customers talking to each other saying, yeah, it met my need. Oh, it met yours too, it met yours too. Oh, wow, these guys must be the leader in this segment. Hey, big deal. And you end up having your initial beachhead, and to the gentleman who's, who raised it earlier, dead right. It becomes the place where you can build because you've now got credibility with a set of customers. And that, let me tell you, from 30 years of experience, is the biggest challenge a startup has, is getting that first set of referenceable customers to say, yeah, you delivered on your promise. That brand you stand for, bang on. It's actually making me more successful as a customer. So let's dig in a little bit more. I've already given you a bit of a clue on this. The typical answer a, an, uh, a startup has is to, talk, to think about this in vertical terms. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, maybe you have a perfect solution for uh, you know, automotive or government. There's nothing wrong with that at all. It's also possible to think about this in completely different dimensions. And I'm just giving you some examples. Size, for example, you mentioned this, thank you, in your you know, uh, bold attempt to obviously get through the positioning statement, that you were going after a certain size in the marketplace. That's totally appropriate too. But again, what if we could get to a much more specific need that everybody has? I.e., let's stick with the compensation example. If people had to get their compensation approved in a certain way to meet regulations, that might span across a bunch of industries. But if it was something that had never been done before and that users could reference each other, it could be really interesting. So sometimes these are talked about as diagonals because they cut across industries. It doesn't matter what your terminology is. The key thing is getting these consistent needs. And so I really encourage you not to give up on segmentation until you can answer that problem. And not to get distracted by verticals or sizes or anything else. They may play an important part in your segmentation. But in the end, you need to look a couple of customers in the eye and say, do you both agree that you have the same need? And then if they do, you're onto a winner. So there's a lot more detail on this on the website. I'm specifically skipping it tonight uh, just to give our guests more time. But what you'll find we talk about up there uh, in one of the case examples is how do you find a critical need? Because back to the value proposition, you know, finding something that is urgent and underserved, et cetera, all the other four U's that we talked about is much more interesting, obviously, than just finding one that, you know, people are not in a hurry to solve or it's not that painful for them. So that's up on the website. I encourage you to spend some time looking at it. We cover this particular case example. So what's the startup secret out of this? I wish I could distill this word even more than I'm going to share it with you. Focus. Everybody's looking at me like, yeah. <laughs> Does anybody think there's any more important word for a startup? OK, either I will put you to sleep or nobody's going to challenge. There must be must, at least one more word that's more important. Money? I don't know. Well, OK, you don't need to challenge me. I really don't think there is. It turns out the biggest challenge that we see with every startup is obviously figuring out where to focus uh, and thinking about that beach, beachhead. But why? 
Because the number one problem I see, literally the number one problem I see in execution with a startup is people try to go too big too fast and they end up contracting on failure. So just think about this for a second. Which would you rather, expand on success or contract on failure? Duh. <laughs> I mean, yet this is the number one issue we run into. People spend way too much time with a grand vision and starting on too broad a market opportunity with not a clear enough defined value proposition that's positioned correctly to a minimal viable segment to start to build that initial set of referenceable customers that can make the success. And you said it earlier, thank you. You're dead on. So it sounds so simple, but it is the most important thing that I'd encourage each of you to try to find a chance to do. Now, last time I gave this session, I had a bunch of people send me email afterwards and said, that's great, but you talked all about vision. And we've got to have a big vision. And what do you, what do you mean? You're talking out of both sides of your mouth here. So I, I put a new post on the site. It's called Vision Versus Execution. And it answers that question at least in terms of thinking about the two. The bottom line is on it that you need both. They just have a different time scale. Your starting point needs to be incredibly focused. Your vision in the long term for years out can be as broad as you like, defining you know, how you're going to dominate the world uh, in the future. But don't go to customers with a vision and try to sell it. Go to the customers with the first set of needs that you can answer uniquely well. And then talk to them about, if they're seeing that success, how they might enjoy the vision with you. That will, will hopefully answer the question that I got many, many times in email. But thanks for the question for everybody who, who threw it in there. All right, well, we've got through the strategic uh, session. And now we're going to get to the piece that hopefully gives you some tangible basis to think about how do you go about addressing what we talked about, which is the sales and marketing cycle. And this is a cycle that many people define in different ways. It doesn't really matter what I've got here as the terms. I'm not trying to be uh, specific about these, except to say that almost every buying cycle starts with somebody finding you, getting awareness of you, and goes through some set of steps like interest in you, understanding what your proposition is, engaging with you to figure it out, trialing it in some way to see if it really delivers, and ultimately, hopefully, purchasing it. Well, if it does all those things, uh, if you do all those things, excuse me, you will obviously find a way at some point to be uh, you know, building some repeatability. What we're going to talk about now is a couple of things I've learned along the way that typically get skipped over. The first is personifying it. So this is like the next level down from segmentation. And again, I often hear people completely skip this. So I'm going to come up with a couple of terms here that make it easy for you to remember, hopefully. The word I use is actors. And that is to say there are various different stages that the customer goes through when they're dealing with you. So think about actors on a stage. Just that's the reason I came up with that analogy. And the customer actors are very different through this cycle. In fact, it's usually what people forget. So for example, right at the top of the cycle, if you're an early stage startup, you'll often be dealing with visionaries. These are people who are looking for competitive advantage from this breakout proposition that you've got. Visionaries are great, but there are very few visionaries who sign checks, unfortunately. Not always the case. I mean, you might get lucky. Um, and it's something, obviously, you can find it. It's great. What you'll usually find is the guy who writes the check is actually an economic buyer. And maybe, again, if you're lucky, he's the decision maker. But he probably has a boss too, especially if you're selling to large enterprises. Or even if you're not, even if you're in a not-for-profit and you're trying to sell to, for example, a foreign government. Trust me, this gets even more complicated, uh, which is one of our case studies. So what I encourage you to do is figure out, well, who are you dealing with? Are you dealing with visionaries? Are you dealing with technocrats, people who actually evaluate the technology, the people who have to operate it to actually operationalize this to get it working, the influencers, which is sometimes different again. 
the people who have, if you like, the political clout in the organization, the economic buyer or the decision maker. And again, I'm not trying to say these are the only categories, but it's just to get you to think about the kinds of actors you'll be dealing with. And why it becomes important is that, do you really think you're going to have the same message for all these people? I see lots of heads shaking. Why not? Go ahead. Because they're motivated by different things. Absolutely. The, the guy who's at the visionary is probably trying to get some competitive advantage in his you know, thought process to convince people that he's on the right track. This guy down here probably doesn't give a damn about that. He's just very focused on some KPIs that he's got to meet to get you know, paid off uh, at the end of the quarter. And he's, he's probably feeling this guy's a nuisance. So the very different motivations here. Uh, the guy who's operating is not at all interested in how much it, it necessarily costs. He's just interested, does it run efficiently? And, and think about this guy. He doesn't even give a damn whether this technology is better. He just wants to know that it's cheaper and faster and all those other things that makes it possible for him to get the best deal. They're just different motivations. And yet, again, I see the startup world obviously um, you know, approaching this and saying, well, we've got a great value proposition, but they're not thinking through how they're going to apply it in these various different stages. Now, one of the things I want to point is, out is at the bottom line, the purchase is actually made ultimately by everybody coming together. And we refer to that as the decision-making unit, the DMU. And good salespeople know what a DMU is. They figure this out early. But I encourage you as well to be thinking about this. Who is the DMU? Who's the group of people that when they come together will ultimately say, yeah, we've got to buy this? And once you figure out what that group is and what the politics are, you'll figure out how to get to the next key startup secret. And that is, how do you qualify early and often? Can anybody tell me why this is important? I mean, it's all up on here, but, but just tell me from your gut instinct. Happy to ask one of our guests if they want to chime in here. Why is qualification important early on? Don't waste precious resources. Thank you, Jameis. Jeez, you should be a VP of marketing in a great company. <laughs> What's going on here is, is you know, you're taking customers through a lot of different steps. So imagine if you take them through all these steps and you find out you really didn't qualify, that they have the pain and need and the right decision-making unit to actually take you to the close. Wow, you just could waste, have wasted three, six, nine, sometimes more months, and all that resources of precious startup is just lost. Yet, that's what I see happen in, in most startups. They don't spend enough time defining that target segment, that minimal viable segment that we talked about, against which, by the way, you qualify the customer to figure out whether they're going to be somebody you can meet uh, the need of, and therefore, you know, there's so much time lost. So qualify early, save all the time and money up front, qualify often because things change. And I really do mean that, like as startup times, you know, basic things happen like your economic buyer changes from position to position in big companies. Or importantly, learn as you're going through this about what is and isn't working and narrow your segmentation. Figure out, you know, what it is that cause somebody to drop out of the sales cycle. In fact, I think the best questions asked of a startup are why didn't somebody buy, not why did they buy. So why didn't they buy can help you narrow. And then as sales qualifiers, people have their own ways of doing this. I'm not going to get into this a whole new area of itself, whether they call it BANT or MANACT, which is what I call it. Uh, figure out who has the money, the authority, the need, the ability, uh, who's the competition is and in what time scales, for example, they're going to buy. Those, those are pretty typical criteria that salespeople will use to qualify. And when you're building your uh, initial go-to-market approach, the earlier you can get all those questions into the cycle to figure out you know, who has the money, et cetera, the better. And that will ultimately lead you to figure out whether you've got a DMU that can actually move the needle. Any questions before I move on? I went very fast through a big subject there. 
uh, but it's such a fundamental one. Uh, and I'm happy to break out and do another session on another time. Yeah, question at the back. So there's elements there that feels like for a startup, you need to have some very experienced marketing people to understand how to manage the, those contacts. Um, what would you say about that if you're in a small team environment? Some of those pieces there, I just think, and how to ever find somebody who can partner with me who can do that stuff well. I, I think it's great to find experience. Um, but I will tell you that if you're opening a brand new marketplace with a brand new product, there probably isn't anybody who's got any experience. And many startups are doing that. So that's why we try to bring these frameworks to the fore, which is that even in a three-man startup, you can start when you do your first set of uh, interviews with customers, qualifying, you know, who are the people in the organization that make these decisions? What are their needs? What are their pains? What are their challenges, et cetera? So yeah, of course, to answer your question, it would be great if you could find that experience. But I'm invested in a, in a seed company right now that we haven't even put money into actually that's busy in its earliest stages formulating what its value proposition is. And they're actually getting out and doing all of this with customers right now to figure out if they've got a minimal viable product and whether they've got the right segment. So I, I don't think you have to be big. I think you can start early. I don't think you have to be experienced. You just have to take this kind of framework and you just have to keep that discipline up. And if you do it right, it'll fall out, as Mark said earlier on, in terms of something very crisp that you can all say, hey, this is our value prop. This is our positioning. This is our brand. And this is what we want to stand for. Does that answer your question? Thanks. Great. Yeah, one in the, in the middle here. Uh, can, we, can I go back to the point that you mentioned uh, startups should focus on figuring out the critical, critical need of consumers? How do, how do you define a critical need? Uh, based on my observation, there are successful companies that are focusing on the needs that are not critical, that consumers can live without it, but still successful. Uh, one very recent example is Fab.com. Yep. Great example. Designs to the people. I can leave, I buy a lot from Fab.com. I can, I can leave without all these designs. So that's not solving the critical needs of consumers, but they are still successful. Fantastic question. And um, I'm going to point you at a resource that's on the site uh, under Value Prop, where we talk about aspirational needs. Uh, and some, some aspirational needs are not critical. They may even be latent. Uh, I, you didn't know that you needed, for example, you know, fab.com to find you this new selection of, of products and services. But once you see it, you go, wow, I wish I'd had that the other day. There's a fantastic example. It's the fastest selling product ever in technology that met a latent aspirational need. Can anybody name what it is? iPod, iPad, iPhone. Nobody knew we needed a pocket computer that had a GPS that could measure every heartbeat that we took, every step we, went, we made, et cetera. But once you've got it, you're going to you say, wow, I'm not giving that up. Uh, so there are plenty of examples of those needs. And what we talk about in that section is how to identify them. Uh, and in, in a consumer world, they're very different than in the business world. So there might be things like, you know, if you follow uh, Maslow's hierarchy of ne needs, there might be social needs, for example, the date. There might be physical needs. There might be economic needs, you know, need for recognition, responsibility, which, by the way, plays into your compensation example. You know, people want to be recognized for, for doing well. So, those needs can play in as well, and, and the framework is, a, is called black and white. How do you identify you know, uh, latent and aspirational needs versus blatant and critical needs? So you'll find it on the site, but it's a great question. Did I at least touch on the right answer for you? Okay, great. Um, I'm gonna, if you don't mind, I'm, I'm going to hold that question to the end, just because I want to keep us on time. We've got a bunch of speakers, but please do stick around, and we'll answer it. Okay, so what we've done here is to cover, as I said, uh, some of the fundamentals that bring you to the point where you've got to figure out what are you going to do to actually be proactively driving to market? And what I'm going to try to do is give you a framework to think about this. So 
when, when I hear startups challenged with, you know, well, what is the first set of things I do? What's the first set of activities I do? You know, most people think about, oh, well, I should do some PR. That's great. That's, that hits the awareness thing. Uh, but then how do you go take it beyond that, get interest, understanding, engagement? So the reason I've come up with driving, you'll see later on, but you are in control of a certain number of things, and I call them gears, that enable you to build momentum. And if you think about yourself starting in neutral and wanting to get to overdrive where you're just nailing customer after customer, then what we've got to think about is how do you do that? Well, the first thing I'm going to tell you is, unfortunately, the customer controls a lot more than you do. A lot more than you do. <laughs> Otherwise, this would be easy. They control the accelerator, the brake, and the clutch. This is kind of like taking your teenage daughter driving, right? Whoops. <laughs> you want to quickly take control again. But unfortunately, you can't. The reality is the customer has these controls. So what are they? Accelerators are the things the customer needs from one step to the other. They don't, as it turns out, move automatically from awareness to interest. You've got to give them a reason to do that. You've got to find out how to move them from one step to another. So for those of you who are here for the business model session, we talked about how you might do that with your product, creating slippery products as we talked about them. Simple, low cost, easy to install type products that make it compelling for them. Think about your own experience, as we talked about iPhones, where you download something from the App Store and within one click you start getting value out of it. Guess what? You'll probably keep going with it and you'll try to evaluate it and go to the point where if you're getting enough value out of it, you'll purchase it. But what will be the breaks? Well, it turns out in almost every buying cycle there are a lot of breaks. And the things that stop the customer moving from place to place are many. It might be a bad product experience. It might be that the license is too difficult to evaluate. It could be so many things. But one of the things I'd ask you as startups not to assume is that it's price. That is the weakest excuse of all. Yeah, it can be price. But these days, it's pretty easy to come up with freemium models. So the real challenge is to figure out what's actually stopping the customer. And as a startup, the thing I'd encourage you to do is one word. Actually, I guess two on here since I've put it up so strongly. Actively listen. So we hear most uh, startups tell us about how they got their first set of customers. I'm actually much more interested here. Well, yeah, but what were the 20 that you lost along the way? And why didn't they buy? And what have you learned from that? And how do you think you might approach either a targeted segment better as a result of learning that um, from the sales rejections and, and what it is that's stopping them? Because that's going to accelerate your cycle if you can figure out how to get them to take the break off. So spend time on that and ask the hard questions. Don't just you know, skip over the customers that didn't buy. They're the ones that really matter. And then this is the fun part. There's a clutch here too, unfortunately. Customers often put the clutch in. And usually they put the clutch in because they don't know what to do next. And it's amazing how many startups don't design this funnel as a complete flow. In other words, think about each step and how each step needs to the, uh, leads to the next one. So it's really obvious for the customer that if, for example, you've got an app, to stick with that analogy, and you want them to purchase something like an add-on or an in-app in purchase, that there's some value for them to do that. Like, for example, if they've bought your fit, uh, you know, fitness monitoring, that by doing that, you can sign them up to a community online which will give them benchmarking against other people who are doing it. It's a great potential thing, but if you don't lead them to that and tell them the benefit of it, they're not going to take that step. And it's amazing how many times I see that clutch go in because nobody defined the next step. So it's obvious, but that's what this is all about, trying to make sure the obvious is, is uh, brought to the fore. So uh, the thing that we skipped over was gears. Once you know what the customer's doing with the accelerator and breaker and clutch, the good news is you can put gears into action. You can bring your tools to market. And the reason I use this analogy is people typically skip many steps. It's just like gears. It's very tough to go from you know, neutral to fifth gear or straight to overdrive. You can't skip awareness, interest, understanding, engagement and get people to go to purchase. Maybe you can accelerate it incredibly quickly. 
so that people get an experience that is so great from your product that they go through that cycle even in a few minutes. But trust me, it will be there. People very rarely spontaneously purchase something unless you happen to be looking at a fashion item and they just got to have it. So there are always exceptions to this. But certainly in software and the technology world, uh, it's pretty much true. So obviously what we're encouraging you to do is think about what are those gears at every step and how will you work with the customer um, through them. And for those of you who are here again to the, it, for the uh, value prop session, I talked about a bunch of those. Uh, they're the things that you could give customers clear visibility into, such as you mentioned, for example, you were cost saving, right? Yeah. Uh, so cost saving is one of them. Revenue is even more powerful if you can show people how they make more money. So one of the things about the demandware proposition that was so compelling is that we can show customers how to convert online to generate more revenue from the merchandising and marketing they're already doing as a service. That was really what drove that first value proposition for Mandra, rather than cutting cost out of all the infrastructure that was put behind e-commerce. Yeah, that's important. But when we told them we could generate more revenue, they started paying a lot of attention. And then there's all the obvious things like time, people, resources, et cetera. There's one in there that's particularly applicable to startups, just to pause on it. Does anybody uh, see what it is? What would be easiest for a startup to sell? It's not that obvious. Go ahead. Competitive advantage. Yeah, dead on. Why? Because you're small and agile. Absolutely. You can figure out what the pain is and address the pain directly without being distracted. It's, it's well said. I couldn't say it any better myself. It also turns out that, remember we talked about visionaries early on? Visionaries in early markets are usually looking for competitive advantage. And they're willing to take big risks if, you think, if they think you can do something that helps them break out. And why? Because they want to obviously look good at that point. And if it's really an order of magnitude, which is what we talk about in the gain pain section, or more, they're willing to take that risk with you. So that's, an, that's a startup type of um, gear that you can engage. If you can figure out how to show people competitive advantage early on. It doesn't necessarily play out later on in markets, but it's certainly very helpful as a startup. OK, back to the customer side. What are the customer's um, issues uh, that they use as accelerators and break? Well, it turns out it's, it's painful even for customers to find startups, which is why it's great to have Brian here who's going to talk about inbound marketing, how we changed that. But that was one of the biggest problems before the web came along, is how did you get people to even see who you were and what you could represent for them? So that's a cost. Um, trying, obviously, your product, engaging with you, you know, how you buy it, whether you make it simple for them to buy or complex to install and integrate and manage and everything else, how you deploy it and so forth. All these are things that we talked about in the value prop session. They turn out to be breaks that the customer will use if it's difficult once you've bought the product to install it, if it's difficult to purchase it in volume. If it's expensive, that's obviously one thing we do. But if it turns out, for example, really difficult to manage. So I'll give you an example that actually spawned the entire company that Mark is here representing, Appearian. It turned out it was really fantastic to see the uptake of the initial apps that went out on the iPad to big companies. But once they got them out there, they couldn't update them, except by bringing them all back to, to the uh, uh, IT department, plugging them into iTunes and, and updating the app. Really painful. That's not going to work when you're Estee Lauder and you've got 13,000 kiosks around the world that have got your, your uh, iPad deployed with the latest uh, you know, uh, updates for your cosmetics coming out every week. So it just turns out these things are incredibly important to think about. What might stop your cycle? And again, the framework here we've been through in the value prop. The last one is fun. Remember I said there's a clutch? For those of you who are here in the value prop session, the clutch is the inertia. It's the risk of working with a startup. At any point, it's likely the customer could just drop out and say, you know what, ah, there's too much risk. Yeah, it's a startup. You know, this isn't a big enough problem, or this is too great a risk. And the default that every uh, company has is to do nothing. 
So you've got to remember that in this cycle. So what is it you're going to do to get them to take the clutch out and let you put a gear in to move them to the next step? And be very clear about that. If you can define that every single step, you will help them move all the way through the funnel. And the real bottom line here is, unfortunately, good enough is good enough. And by default, if you've got a good enough solution in place, you won't look at a startup. That's why we always talk about having a gain-pain ratio that's got to be at least a 10x uh, to get over the initial inertia of being a startup. Okay, for time's sake, I'm going to cover this next section very quickly. Again, those of you here in the last session on business model will remember me talking about core, uh, the um, capabilities of really exceptional value that you have, the real core value you have, and how do you put multipliers and levers around it. These are exactly the things that, again, help you. If, for example, you've got multipliers around freemium products or channel partners that can help you with the customer relationships or slippery products that make it really easy to buy and try or technology stacks that pull you to market because you're part of a whole product, those will accelerate you through the buying cycle. And lever examples are, are things that we're going to hear from Brian and David about that are how do you use new tools like the web and inside sales or even just you know, good old high-touch product uh, support and services to make it easier for the customer to get through without keeping pulling the brake on. And what I recommend you do to, to simplify all this is road test over and over again. People typically spend way more time on their product uh, and honing their product than they do road testing. And the road test for me is this. Get out there and check how much time, how many people, what resources are involved at every step of your cycle, and accelerate as best you can with automation. Because if you keep having to do this manually, it'll never scale. So figure out how you're going to automate, whether it's with what we're going to talk about, inbound marketing or clever things like, for example, you know, better use of CRM systems. And then figure out what your levers are. Can you, for example, get channels that will help you accelerate? Uh, can you get tools, things like videos or podcasts, that package instead of every sales rep having to go out every time and pitch? Put it on the web. Figure out how to make it a podcast. Put it in a self-service portal. Uh, I didn't put it in this time, but last time we talked about companies like Symantec. You've got literally a quarter of a million customers being uh, helped by actually one of our companies, Acquia, uh, with a self-service portal that provides all the knowledge for them to move through evaluations. Really powerful. And then use the multipliers that we've talked about, such as you know, slippery products uh, and clever packaging to actually make it easy for your value to come right through very quickly. So again, more of this um, than probably you have time to get into tonight. But if you take away nothing else tonight around the sales cycle than the following, it is that it's at least as important to road test your go-to-market as it is to test your product. And I don't see enough of that being done in startups, unfortunately. There's way too much spend on the technology and not enough on the go-to-market. So to bring this to life, um, Mark very kindly agreed to share with us what did he do when he was at Spotfire. And so Mark, come on up and, and share with us how you approached this. Great, thank you. <clears throat> so um, we had devised this, uh, this tool or framework called Plays. So it was using a sports analogy. So it takes you know, lots of different players on the team in order to get down the field, as an example. And the concept of play for us was, how are we going to go to market? How are we going to go after a specific market segment, focused like a laser beam, and, and actually execute across the organization, cross-functionally? We're going to need help from the marketing team, from the pre-sales organization. Maybe we want changes in the product itself, right? And how are we going to actually execute our field organization out there to pull this thing off? And in the spirit of focus, like Michael is encouraging us to, you know, to think about, 
Um, at the time when I left Spotfire, we were, you know, well north of, of $100 million. It was a, an organization that was playing in a number of different vertical and horizontal markets. So we needed the ability to go to market in each of those focused areas that was all part of that initial positioning statement. But even if you're in a small organization, you may not have multiple plays to go to market. I think there's value in thinking through, I'm going to jump through here just in the interest of time. There's value in thinking through your go-to-market strategy and summarizing it in one slide. So if you think about the topics that Michael was, was, was hitting on, the actors, who are we going after? What segment are they in? What is the very specific audience? This play card that I'm showing you is a one-slide summary of how Spotfire went to market to reach risk professionals in the financial services industry with our analytics product. On the left-hand side, you're basically defining who are we trying to reach, what keeps them up at night, What's the core message that helps differentiate our offering? And what's the competitive advantage that we bring distinctly over the next best competitor? So it's essentially mapping out the market strategy or the go-to-market strategy. On the right-hand side, we'd force our teams to come up with the tactical details to pull that off cross-functionally. So that this wasn't a marketing-led initiative, but you'd get, even as a small company, get people from different domains around the organization. Share with them the objectives of what you're trying to do. What are the accelerators and the brakes and the clutches for your business? Help people in the organization understand what you're trying to do. And you'd be surprised what, what creative ideas come. You know, getting these great ideas from the pre-sales group or the engineering group because they've got an idea of a clutch that, you know, that we can help address by bringing and building it in, into some of the go-to-market plan. So we touch on the major categories that you'd expect, but again, we force it in one page. How are we going to create demand for the organization? How are we going to equip our field organization or channels? to capture some of that demand. You know, what partners need to be enabled, what product enhancements need to be built into this. And, and ultimately, pulling all of this together will help you reach that target segment. And again, in a bigger company, you could have multiple uh, play cards that you would run. In a smaller organization, you should be satisfied by getting everybody on the same page. And there can be detailed plans behind each one of these things. But get people on the same page, focus on how you're going to market, and make sure you understand all of the levers that you're going to bring to bear to get through the the customer buying cycle. Mark, just a good, uh, this is great, thank you very much. How quickly, once you'd adopted these play cards, did you get repeatability, and what were some of the things you, sh you got in the way of growth at, at Spotify when you did this? You know, the, it's a great question. The challenge that we had was that we were going after a couple of different actors in different markets, and they were at different places in their buying cycle. So we could literally win clinical, trials deal, clinical trial deals at will. If I could get to the opportunity, we could execute. So the play looked totally, totally different. This particular one here was about going into a market, raising awareness, and, and helping to um, you know, build awareness and send it into the pipe. The clinical trials play delivered benefits immediately. We would measure everything. More of an, uh, of a, um, uh, an awareness-generating play like this took, I mean, we would, it would take months in order to get demonstrable results coming out of this. But we'd measure top of pipe. How are things you know, falling through the waterfall? Do we see any uptake early on? Are, we, are people getting stuck? Let's inject another customer tool. Let's Great. inject some other piece of information on the website to help people move down the, uh, move down the waterfall. Terrific. I'm touching on it quick. I'm happy to talk in more detail. I found these really, really helpful to really force decisions along the paths that Michael was, uh, was outlining. So, Thank you very much, Mark. I, a thing I wanted to, to bring out by asking that question is that I would encourage you to be patient with yourselves because a lot of times you think, oh, well, I've, you know, I've got three months to get a product out the door. Three months is not a lot of time to road test your go-to-market, unless you have very short sales cycles, which of course I hope you do. Maybe you can get down to you know, days or, or uh, weeks uh, in, in terms of sales cycles or maybe minutes. But 
If you don't, you've got to be prepared to take the time to do the road testing and give yourself a chance to explore the full sales cycle. And that's actually, even though you might think it's expensive, and I see a lot of startups saying, oh, God, I can't take six months to do that. That's so much time. It's a stitch in time saves nine. And if you really figure it out early on, you figure out how your qualification is going to work, it will save you so much money down the track. So thank you, Mark. You brought that to life very well. All right. Well, the good news is I only have one more section, so you can get rid of me and get the, the guests back on stage. Uh, but it's a pretty important one. This is the results-oriented measured execution, as I call it, Rome for short. So why this is so important is that, unfortunately, marketing is the one budget that most people look at and they go, well, that's discretionary. <laughs> and in many instances, it is, unless you can prove what it is that's actually being delivered from it in terms of value. So this is how I encourage you to do this. First of all, measure every step. You can't manage what you can't measure. And the first things you want to think about are obviously what we talked about, time, people, and other resources. But what becomes important is conversion rates. And all the things that I talked about, the accelerators, brake, and clutch, and gears, are things that you should be measuring against. How did that move the conversion rate from one step to the other? And if you can keep showing that this particular gear, whenever you engage it, accelerates and causes conversion to go up from 2% to 10%, obviously you'll keep doing it over and over again. Uh, so that's why we think about it that way. To look at it visibly, this is really all about figuring out how do you get leads in up the top and a customer out the bottom. And so what we're trying to do is measure the time and resources and conversion rate at every step to figure out what are the steps that make an impact. And ultimately, at the bottom, how much did it cost you to acquire your customer uh, in time, dollars, and resources? And you've probably heard this phrase now, the cost of acquisition of a, uh, of a customer. That's really what this is all about. And it's, it's thinking about all the resources that go into that and what at each step made an impact. Now, as a startup, what you're looking for is one word, flow. You're looking for a seamlessly linked set of steps where the customer doesn't keep engaging the clutch and you keep going into neutral, but where every step is really obvious and it's obvious for them to move uh, from, for example, interest to understanding and how they can then engage with you and then trial your product and buy it. And if you do this well, it turns out there's a very obvious secret. You can't skip this step because if everything's not seamlessly linked, the next step will not work, which is to reverse engineer it. In other words, if you know that keeping it simple, 10% of your leads convert to customers. I wish it was that. Uh, many companies are way off that. But let's say it's 10%. Then obviously, to get 10 customers next week, you're going to have to have 100 leads. And you're going to know what are the various different steps you're going to have to take to move them through from awareness to purchase. So it turns out the really exciting thing about this is it is possible to do this much more easily these days than it ever was you know, back 20, 30 years ago uh, when my brother and I were, were first trying to do this. And that's because the web actually makes it possible to close the loop. You can measure every step if you're doing, for example, all of this online. And many companies are doing just that. And in fact, as a result of that, they're effectively reverse engineering the process and saying, well, what is it that I need to do to build the business that I have? And they can pre, uh, if you like, plan the costs and resources and so forth that are associated with it. Now, when you come to us as an investor, by the way, and you've figured that out, can you imagine how much more confidence that fills us with that now that supposedly discretionary line about marketing is actually worth putting a couple of million dollars or $10 million behind because you can show us what it is that moves the needle. So this is why this becomes so important. So the web changes nearly everything. And I just want to point out a couple of things. You certainly can measure everything. You can create a closed loop and it's lower cost. So that helps with things like you know, being able to do what I call the virtual sales and marketing cycle. You, know, you really don't need today to start out thinking about salespeople and you know, the six-legged sales call with an SE and, uh, and so forth. But 
what you can do instead is to think about how would you automate everything and create everything as you know, uh, webinars or videos and podcasts. Now the negatives are, and, and it's pretty obvious, but I want to state it. Unfortunately, as everything's on the web, your competitor's also only one click away. And so you are going to get cost comparison, you know, price-based shopping, all the kinds of things that go on all the time. And so you have to think about that. You have to think about how all the things we talked about in competitive positioning play out on the web. Because all of those become distractions with just one click. And then I can't overemphasize this enough. I hear companies a lot, particularly when they're selling more complex products, skip the reality of trying to do this without learning the customer interaction for themselves first. For example, they say, oh yeah, no, we're just going to build an affiliate program. The affiliates will do this. That might work. But if you don't firsthand experience what the customer goes through in terms of pain of adopting your product and learning for yourself where you've got to improve, for example, the experience of the product, the installation, or whatever else, you'll never refine it and you'll never move the needle in terms of making that whole flow that we talk about really happen. So there's no substitute at the end of the day for creating relationships and creating experiential learning. But the good news is you can do that on the web too. <laughs> Most of this can be done, you know, whether it's via Skype or even you know, interaction on webinars. So there's a lot of things here that are really exciting about this new world. And that gives me a great uh, chance to introduce our guest speaker tonight, which is Brian Halligan, who pretty much defined this whole term of inbound marketing. So welcome, Brian. Happy to have you with us. How's everybody doing? Everybody stand up. I have ADD, and I'm like a caged lion over there. Put your hands over your head. Okay, stick your right out and do a little shake. Left out, do a little shake. Sit back down. Nice job. Nice job, team. Okay, who's heard of HubSpot? Okay, cool. Uh, so we got a crowd that sort of gets it. So this, this idea of inbound marketing, I, I really like this idea a lot. It's a new type of marketing. And um, there's sort of two observations behind it. And the first one's driven, dri driven um, here. Anyone know who this handsome guy is on the left? Famous guy. Come on, you're Harvard Business School here. That's my dad. <laughs> and that's me on the right. And if I just, I just, the, the first observation that, that led me to this idea of inbound marketing is just this radical transformation in how humans live and shop and learn. There's been this, ta uh, this sort of tear in the fabric of the universe around the way work happens. The way we all live and shop and learn has radically changed. And I think that the difference is shown with my dad. I think about my dad, he got a lot of mail. Every night he'd come home at 6 o'clock, I'd sit next to him on the bench, and he would have the scotch and water and have a little cheese with, with crackers, and he would open like all this mail and read it. I never open my, do you guys ever open your mail? There's never anything in there that's useful. He, he, we got seven TV stations, channel two, channel four, five, seven, 38, 56. And if you get the rabbit ears just right, you can get channel 68. Um, and he talked on the phone a lot, and just very different from all of us. You know, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Gmail. It's just a radically different way I work and live and shop and learn. Uh, so that's sort of my first observation I sort of came up with. My, my second observation is that the playbook that marketers use, almost all marketers use this, um, is pretty common. I, and the playbook is we're going to buy a list of email addresses and we're going you know, to bang people over the head on email. We're going to hire a bunch of young and hungry telesales reps and we're going to cold call people. We're going to spend a bunch of money on uh, advertising on Google AdWords or whatever it would be. We're going to hire a PR firm to interrupt journalists. Uh, we're going to do TV ads. We're going to do radio ads. That's sort of the marketing playbook. 
And that playbook worked great for my whole career. I sort of built my career on that. I call it the outbound marketing playbook. There's only one problem with that playbook. What's the problem? What's the problem? What's the problem? With that, with that playbook. I mean, it's the opposite of what you guys do. I know, but what's the problem? <laughs> You're reaching a lot of people who don't want to hear your message. People are sick and tired of being marketed to, and they're sick and tired of being sold to, and they get really good at blocking it out, whether that's a DVR at home or it's caller ID on your phone blocking the goddamn sales reps out. Um, whether it's um, you've got uh, you, you've got ad blocker software now that'll block out the Google AdWords that doesn't work as well. You've got uh, spam protection software and you've got uh, priority inbox with your Gmail. It's nearly impossible to reach somebody with the traditional marketing playbook today. You need to take that everything you learned in your marketing class here at HBS, throw it away. Doesn't work anymore. Completely rethink marketing to match the way humans actually shop and learn today. And that's what I call uh, inbound marketing versus outbound marketing. So if you start a new company, do it with inbound, don't do it with outbound. Now, there's a couple things I really like about this inbound approach versus the traditional outbound approach. With inbound, your success is much more about the width of your brain than it is about the, width, uh, about the uh, width of your wallet. Big companies have a, lot, have a big, thick wallet and a really thin brain. Small companies have big brain, thin wallet. Inbound marketing is great for small businesses. So you people at HBS, I heard, I'm a Sloan guy, but I heard a rumor the HBS people have big brains. And so you guys should be all over this inbound marketing discussion because your success is much more about the width of your brain than the width of your wallet. You don't really need any money to be successful with inbound marketing. Second thing I like about inbound marketing is the way it scales. So let me, let me walk through how I think most venture-backed startup marketing departments work. Here's how it works. Everybody ready? You get your pile of, pile of venture capital. It's a pile. Sequoia Capital, they put all the venture in. And the marketing guy's like, great. Here's my plan. I got my shovel. Hold on. Shovel. And over here on the left, that, that's Google AdWords, uh, but it, it's really a furnace. So I got my shovel. I got all the money, and I throw it into Google's mouth. And Google grows like crazy. But you're stuck, and you can't grow, and it's really hard to get the math work with AdWords. And this is how a lot of startups try to get the math to work. It's AdWords and uh, Facebook ads. Just darn hard to make it work. If you get it to work, you put a dollar in the machine, you get like a dollar ten out of the machine. Really hard to get that math work. The way inbound marketing works is very different. Let's just say, let's just say you're the CEO of Ford Motor Company. If you're CEO of Ford Motor Company, you've got assets on your balance sheet. What are some of the assets on your balance sheet? Ford Motor Company, assets on the balance sheet. Factories, inventory, cash, thank you, David, you're a very good student, um, things like that. Now, let's say you're VP of marketing or you're the founder of a startup. What are the marketing assets you've got? The vision. That's crap. Hard, tangible asset on your balance sheet if you're a marketer. Perspective. That's horseshit. Time or shit. Come on. Okay, let me get let me give you a hint. Links into your website. What's another one? HBS. Twitter handle. What is, what? Like a Twitter handle. Twitter followers. Is that what you said? Brilliant. What else? 
Facebook fans, number of keywords you rank for in Google, number of uh, pages on your website, those are hard, tangible, modern marketing assets on your marketing balance sheet. And what happens is you create an asset today, create a piece of content today, and it's, a, it's an asset that lasts forever and scales forever. It, it, it pulls in customers and it lasts forever and, and, it, and, and it pulls in customers essentially forever. So it's not like you're renting that asset. You own, you own this asset. You're not renting space on Google. You're not renting space in some list. You're not renting space on Facebook. You're creating your own marketing assets to become magnets that pull customers in. People with me? Guys with me? Cool. Okay, the other thing I like about inbound marketing versus outbound marketing is people hate outbound marketing. Does anyone like getting called at home at 6 o'clock? Does anyone like getting spam? Anyone like those television ads? Sucks. Inbound marketing is great. You create all this content, and it's rich content, and it's informative, and it pulls people in, and it's engaging. So people fall in love with your brand like they fall in love with Patagonia, or they fall in love with Apple, or they fall in love with Whole Foods, these brands that people love. That's what you want to create a lovable, modern brand. People are really sick of this traditional marketing. Okay. And so how do you do inbound marketing? Well, we've got a couple minutes here, so I'm going to talk about part of it. The first thing you need to do as an inbound marketer is, is to create tons of content. The idea is you got to turn your website into a modern magnet by creating tons of remarkable content. Blog articles, genius, brilliant blog articles, um, e-books, webinars, things like that. And if your blog article is good or your webinar is good or your ebook is good, it'll pull people in. And the better it is, the more retweets it'll get, the more Facebook likes it'll get, the more links it'll get, the longer it will sustain, the more leads it'll pull in. And it'll be really, really awesome. So the key to being a modern genius marketer, creating tons and tons of remarkable content. You market, you market today, think of yourself like Disney or Fox or CNN, like you're a production studio. So think of yourself like a production studio turn your brains into customers. What's this? Who said that? You said that. What's your name? Beva, you're a goddamn genius. <laughs> that is the internet. What are the dots? Pages. Customers. They're pages. They're, we they're websites, okay? And the big white ones are big websites. What are, what, are the, what are the lines between the pages? Links. The more, the more links you have, the more visitors you'll get, the more authority you get, the more mojo you get. And the way I kind of think about it is links are to the internet as dollars and cents are to the economy. How do you get a lot of links into your website? Good content. Brilliant content. What's your name? Genius. Bill's a genius. Remarkable content. Here's, what you, here's what's going to happen. You're going to start your company, and your website's going to be like Cambridge, Massachusetts, right? It's like Cambridge, Mass. How many, how many airports in Cambridge? Zero. How many, how many like bus stations, real ones? None. Train stations. Highways. Eh, a couple, two highways. You want to turn your website from Cambridge, Massachusetts to New York City. How many, how many airports in New York City? Yeah, two, three whoppers, train stations. Yeah, you got Penn State, a lot of big train stations. How many bus stations? The bus stations are Twitter. The train stations are Facebook. Uh, the airports are LinkedIn. The highways are links from other websites. So to be a remarkable, modern, great marketing people love that scales, you have to be able to create a lot of content. Anyone know what this is? 
This is, I used to live in Japan. This is the Imperial Palace in Japan. And I took this, this picture because it reminds me of my favorite philosopher. My favorite philosopher is a guy named Warren Buffett. What Warren Buffett says to his CEOs is you want to build a moat around your business. You want to build barrier to entry, uh, barriers around your business, like Michael was talking about. And the modern moat around your business, the way he says it, I really like. It's like you want to make the moat, make it really wide, make it cold, and put sharks in and alligators and wider and colder. I think the modern moat around your business, I totally agree with Michael, isn't a patent, isn't a trademark. It's this inbound marketing stuff. It's how many links into your site? How's that growing? How many keywords are you ranking for? How many Facebook fans? How many LinkedIn fans? How are you getting them converting down the funnel? That stuff's really hard to replicate. And it reminds me of a company that I really like uh, called Zappos. Um, when I think of Zappos, let's just say I wanted to start a company to compete with Zappos. And I was going to, you and I were going to start it. We're going to start it. We're going to, what's your name? Atavik. We're going to bury them. You and I were going to bury them. We could, we could figure out a lot. We could get the, a good-looking website and hire a designer. We can even get their funky culture right. We can get the inventory. We can get the supply chain. The thing that's a bear for us to compete with is Tony Shea, the CEO. He's got 6 million Twitter followers. Their website's got 500,000 links into it. They're, they have 5 million keywords they rank for. That's a nearly insurmountable competitive advantage for the two of us to compete with. That's what I wish for you, an insurmountable competitive advantage. Go for inbound marketing really works. I don't know about you, but I feel like I need to rush out and buy something that he's selling. <laughs> Whatever it was, I'm buying. I'm in. Uh, too late, I think. I think a smarter brother got there earlier. Wait. If you want to learn more, inbound marketing book, you can check out. Or go to HubspotMarketingGrader.com. You put your URL in there, and it will give you a grade of 1 to 100 on how good or bad you are at this stuff. <coughs> and then if you like this stuff, I teach a class at Sloan on it. It's a half semester class. You could cross-register for it. That's the info. Thank you very much. We'll try to put all those links up on the site so everybody can get to them. Great stuff. So there is no question that as people think about this, there are a lot of challenges to adopting this model just on its own. And there are people who talk about inbound as only being suitable for a certain deal size. We don't believe that's the case. It's not really to do with deal size. It's to do how you approach this thing. But it's certainly a question worth posing. So as a counterpoint, we didn't have time to get into it tonight. But Mark was kind enough to produce a document that's up on the site that you can go connect to, which is how can you also use this to get the best of all worlds in a hybrid model? Because there are certainly instances where outbound still makes sense. It's not just a you know, one size fits all. So that can be found online at the resources under go-to-market uh, outbound marketing. And again, it's all up on the website if you want to just click on it there. So thank you, Mark, for doing that. And sorry we didn't have time to fit it all I in tonight. Love inbound, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd be tough to follow that act. Yeah, I'll give you my two cents on that. Uh, you can't give me the hook and No, this is good. This is what we're here for. Let's say you're salesforce.com or you're IBM. You've got a big brand and you start cold calling. People have heard of your brand. They might pick up your phone. If you're some little startup out of HBS that no one's ever heard of selling performance management software, <laughs> You are really, that's an extra special waste of your time. Um, so I think outbound marketing actually starts to work as you get bigger in the early days and think inbound, start using that. So I feel a debate raging there, which we need to get into. But, but actually, I think it's, it's, a, it's a great piece of advice. And uh, maybe what we'll do is we'll set up that debate for some, some fun another time. But thank you very much. Um, and thanks, Mark, also for contributing that. OK, so. On the last section here, and um, uh, quite excited to introduce uh, my brother David, who's been a, a fan of building this notion of a sales and marketing machine for some time.
and really has taken what many people used to think of as an art and created a science out of it. And I think it's so helpful to hear from him why this is possible because it's not just about size. It's back to that thought that uh, Brian just articulated so well, which is if you use your brain early on, you actually really can turn this into a science. So David, great to have you here. Welcome. Hey, good evening, everybody. Pleasure to be here. Um, so one of the things that I want to do is a little bit um, covered by Mike, but I'm going to um, cover it again in a slightly different way for you here. So if we think about what the basic of a funnel is here, um, I think it's really straightforward. You take a bunch of suspects, and you put them through a bunch of stages, and you hope to get somebody that's a closed deal. And once you've got a closed deal, you then want to do the reverse part of that, which is to try to expand that so you get the entire usage, uh, potentially get some upsell. Uh, in that process there. And so an interesting thing here is if, if we were in a perfect world for all of you as marketers, you would be able to get all of that done in one single step. And how many of you would like it if we could put up a website which looked like this, where we put up a small video of our product and told you that it cost $9,999 and said, buy it now. So the interesting question here is why does this not work? Can you answer, answer that question for your own particular products? If I can grab somebody in the audience who's got a specific startup and a product here to tell this audience here why this would not work for their product. Yeah. Because you're, you're not targeting the buyer, you're not, you're not targeting the, the market, a, a specific enough segment to answer their, their question. You're right, but imagine for two seconds here that you have got the right buyer um, who's targeted on the site. What stops them from feeling comfortable to click the button there, right then and there? Go ahead. They see the price before I see the video and how the product is. So they're worried about the price. They're not sure if they're going to get a return on investment on the money. Would be one. Price can scare them before see what is the product. Trust? Like, how do they know that they can trust your product? Trust is a fantastic word. That was very well done. Thank you very much. So they're very concerned about can they trust you and can they trust your product to actually work would be a key one. Yep. There are multiple stakeholders. Who's going to make the decision to buy and not to buy? Excellent. Thank you very much, Adi. That's a very good one. Yep. People usually want to dig deeper. And I don't, there's nothing else for you to do on this page. So there, you can play the video again, but the same kind of information. So why, why do they want to dig deeper? What, what information do they need to find that they're looking to dig deeper for? It could be credibility, it could be, but I think people in the purchase decision-making process, they need multiple cycles of confirmation until they reach the point that they're confident enough that this is going to be useful. Okay, so uh, let me, you're dead right, but the thing that I'm, I'm trying to get you to do is to tell me exactly what they're looking for when they do that digging. So you have clarity in your mind about precisely what questions they feel they need to have answered before they're going to be comfortable to actually buy your product. Do you see where I'm going with that? Yeah. The affirmation from other customers. Perhaps. Affirmation from other customers. Why do they want affirmation from other customers? What are they trying to solve there? Is, is there some human emotion that you can think of that that's going to make them feel better about? Yeah, they want to be in and with whatever is, you know. And what about fear of failure? Do you think they might have a fear of failure? Yeah, I think that's one of the big ones is that the, the, the looking at other customers takes away some of that fear from them. Yeah. Yeah, and if social proof, if it, in addition to that, also makes them not have to make decisions themselves. You see that a lot of people with similar needs have succeeded, that they can short circuit their evaluation of it and say, okay, it's likely to succeed for me as well. 
Yeah, that's an excellent uh, recognition there. Yeah, one last one at the back. How it can help them out in solving their problems. Yes, exactly. Is this actually going to solve my problem as opposed to is it merely going to be some cool thing where I can watch some cool video? So what I was trying to do there was pretty simple, which is I'm trying to get you to step out of the way you think about the world and put yourself into your customer's brain to try to understand what's going on in their brain when they are asked to buy your product. And if I can recommend this to you, I would strongly suggest writing down every one of these points, particularly for your product here. So it might be things like, is it going to integrate with salesforce.com? <coughs> um, are my people going to be able to actually work this? Is there a good return on investment? Um, but fear is one of the greatest things that you've got to overcome. Fear of failure, fear of, of themselves looking like idiots because they brought something into their company that, that didn't work uh, and overcoming that. So that's one of the key things that we want to have is that list of things that have to be satisfied before somebody will buy your product. And to me, uh, the art of marketing is really figuring out how to take what should have been that one step with the instant buy button and designing the series of steps that will allow you to effectively accomplish answering each one of those questions for them. So um, when we think about trying to design these steps here, Michael already covered this for you. I have a much simpler buying cycle than him. I think his is excellent. Uh, mine just has three stages in it, awareness, consideration, and um, purchase. Let me give you a little example of, of what we're thinking about here. How many of you have gone, um, let's say you're going to pick up your kid from school, and actually, I don't think anybody in this room has kids, so it's probably not applicable, but you've been wandering around town waiting for a train, and you wandered into a store without any intention to purchase, and within five seconds of getting in the door, a salesperson came <coughs> rushing up to you and started trying to convince you that these sweaters here would look fabulous on you, and you really should consider buying them, and won't leave you alone, and all you really wanted to do was wander around the store. Can anybody tell me how do they feel when that experience happens to them? <laughs> it's not fun, is it? Right, it's not an enjoyable experience to be sold to. So that's a really interesting thing here. The more I ask people about this, the more clear it becomes that people really don't like to be sold to. But let me give you a different example. You are out at lunch, you accidentally spill your coffee over your sweater, you're now in a terrible state, you've got to go to an important meeting, you run into a store, you desperately need another sweater, you can't find a salesperson anywhere. Very irritating, right? So what's different? One, you didn't want the salesperson, and the other one, you did want the salesperson. Anybody have an answer as to why they're different? They are in need. They are in need of uh, the salesperson, the need that you're right, they have a need. Um, the thing that I believe is really the key is that, is that in the one, they're actually very early in the buying cycle. They don't even have awareness of what they're trying to buy. In the other one, they're really far down the purchase cycle and they know exactly what they want to buy. And the mistake that I think most marketers make is thinking that every single person who comes to their, their website and that they meet is actually immediately ready to buy. So they need to jump straight into selling to them. And they turn them off with this amazingly aggressive pitch to them and it's really the wrong approach. And my personal guess is that 80% of the people who come to your website aren't ready to buy, and really you have to do something else to engage them and build a careful and quiet relationship with them and just hope that you are around at the time when they do actually find that they have that need and are ready to buy it. And that's something which I think most marketers make a terrible mistake of and, and um, try to sell too quickly. So the other thing that's really interesting here is the concept of triggers in the buying cycle. 
There are, for an awful lot of products like an antivirus product, it's very hard to sell somebody that until they've actually had a virus or until they've read an article that scared them about a virus. Or maybe in the case of backup software, have you, it's hard to sell backup software to people that haven't actually suffered a loss. There's not the motivation there. So the triggers that happen, and I'd ask you to think about uh, the triggers that specifically cause your buyers to actually figure out they need your product. And the thing I'm going to show you in a while here is, as a marketer, can you cause that trigger to happen? That's a very powerful thing if you can, because if, you, if you're able to make that happen, you can move them out of a very simple interest stage and actually into the point where they have need and want to, want to uh, move forward here. What is the, the things that you do at the two different stages of the funnel, the top of the funnel stage? Top of the funnel is really very simple, which is this is when you're dealing with a customer who's, who on the farthest left-hand side has no idea that they have a need for your product and on the farthest right-hand side, it's very clear that they have an exact need for your product. And there's a spectrum of gray and white in between that. And there's different activities that you would take. But my key thing that I want to get across to you here is that when you finish the top of the funnel, what you want to be doing, I believe, is driving them to your website. And when you get them to your website, you want to get their email address from them. Because if you don't have their email address or some other connection with them, you cannot continue to stay in touch with them and continue to, to uh, build a relationship with them there. So once you've gone through that stage there, you'll go into the next phase, which I think is the, the middle of the funnel. And the middle of the funnel is pretty straightforward. It's really about determining which people are actually ready to buy and putting attention and focus on them with the qualification phase. And those who are not, you stick into a big lead nurturing bucket and <coughs> you want software like HubSpot to help you run this. And basically the art of doing great lead nurturing is to get very good at segmenting your customers down because the open rates on emails that are generic and broad across the whole base will be very low. But if you can pick people that are in very specific verticals and send them an email saying, I know you're a photography company, here's how we solve problems for photographers, that does very well. And similarly, for example, if you've got somebody who's doing a free trial of your product and you know by using um, ex uh, tracking of which things they've used and which things they haven't used, that they've used this feature but not that feature, you want to send them an email which says, hey, I see you've experienced this part of our product, but I would like to encourage you to, to look at this, and here's a video which shows you the benefits of that, and here's how to get into it. So that's about where they are in the usage of your product, where they are in the sales cycle. So being able to segment, building up a database um, that shows you not only the attributes of the person, but also all of the things that they've done. Have they been to your website? Were they on the page where, for example, the pricing is, the pricing page is a good indicator that, for example, they're ready to buy. Were they on the technical pages? That tells you that they're a technical buyer. Were they on the pages that have got all the customer testimonials? That probably tells you they're a business buyer. So you treat them differently, send them different emails based on that kind of information there. If you get to this um, uh, point here of having a funnel set up, one of the key things that we will have done is created a series of steps, each step uh, will actually be trying to address one of these questions that they, they had to have addressed when you were um, asking the question of why they didn't buy with the single uh, page website there. So what we want to do is uh, for the metrics here, I'm just going to give you a very simple concept of how to design your metrics for a funnel. You're going to measure how many people were in each step and also uh, when you finished that step, how many people converted to the next step? Michael was 100% right. One of the key things that I discover when I walk into most companies is that they haven't connected their 
activities together. So they didn't make a link between the webinar that they held and what they want to do next. Um, so we are, I assume here, designing a completely linked series of actions. So when they come out of one, they're going to go straight into the next. And you want to measure how many actually did convert there. So let's take a very simple funnel and show you what that might look like. Assuming here that we've got visitors coming to a website and we want to convert those into a trial. And out of the trial, we're hoping that they're going to convert into a closed deal. So in that particular case, what we want is how many visitors have we got, and we want a trend line so showing us that hopefully that's going up and to the right, a trend line of how many trials we've got, again, hopefully going up and to the right, and a trend line of how many closed deals. And then we want the conversion rate from visitors to trials and the conversion rate from uh, trials to closed deals. So that's the pretty simple way to tell you how to design your metrics for your funnel. And this um, is one last thing here is you want the overall conversion rate. And the reason for this is that different lead sources have very different conversion rates. So your Facebook ads, for example, might be completely different to your inbound marketing leads. And you need to know that because some of them are going to be good investments and, and uh, give you a good payback and others won't. So these metrics will help tell you wh which is working and which is not working. Now, once you've got these metrics in place, you will find that every funnel, even Cisco, Microsoft, Oracle, etc., have blockage points where their funnels aren't working the way that they hope they will do. All right, so I found I spend a lot of time and have a ton of fun going around at companies and talking to them about their blockage points. I spent three hours with one of my portfolio companies doing that just before I came here. And what I've discovered is that the, the key thing is you want your customers to do something. You designed your funnel the way you wanted it to work. And the customers are not motivated to do what you wanted them to do. So the step you're asking them for, the classic step everybody wants is you want them to come to your website. Well, they don't really have a reason why they want to come to your website. You've got to give them a good reason why they want to come to your website. Once you've got them to the website, you want their email address. How many of you like giving email addresses to websites? This man's shaking his head aggressively here. I think most of you feel the same way. Why? You're worried about getting spam, right? You hate getting spam email. So what we're looking at here um, maybe give you an example of an uh, uh, investment that I made a long time ago. Any of you heard of a company called JBoss at all? A few of you have, yeah. It's an open source Java application server. And they had, uh, when I first ran into them, um, uh, had five million downloads of this take place. And when, when I went with them, they had a business selling documentation for $27,000 a month. And they were also selling training for it. So they were making a couple of hundred thousand dollars a quarter with this business. And they had a new idea about selling support contracts. And I was brought in to kind of look at how do we market this? What do we do to create these steps here? So the first thing I said to them is, where are the names of the five million people that downloaded this thing? Because we want to talk to them. And they told me that they tried putting an email form in front of that download. And it had cut the download rate by a factor of 10. So that really clearly brings out, you know, nobody wants to give their email address there. So what we did was pretty simple. This is the uh, thing that Michael's talked about a little bit, but I have a slightly different way of describing it. We looked at, um, on this blockage point here, there are two key elements that stop people from doing things. One of them is friction, and the second one is what are their concerns. And what we have to do as marketers is come up with a really super strong motivation that is more powerful than the resistance that they have, the friction that they have, and the concerns that they have. We've got to answer their concerns as well. Sometimes it's just a matter of telling them that you're not going to spam them and giving them some assurance that they won't have problems. 
but the art here is, is getting inside of the customer's head and understanding what's going on in their brain and recognizing other things about them. So a little example here is if you want somebody to come to your website and you don't want to annoy them straight away with selling, you need to attract them there with something interesting to them. And so the answer to that is get inside of their heads, understand the things like what does their boss expect of them at the end of every quarter? How do they get graded for good marks if their boss thinks they've done a great job? Or what do they, what do they personally worry about most? And maybe use those things uh, that are inside of their brain, not your brain, as to what you want to have happen to create the incentives for them here. So I'm going to uh, quickly illustrate what we did with JBoss. It was pretty straightforward. We took the documentation that they were selling for $27,000. After three months of arguing with them to give it away free, they finally gave it away free, and it turned on a lead flow of 10,000 leads per month for them, which uh, created another problem, which is that's too many leads for most salespeople to handle. But at least it was a, a huge start, and this basically fueled the whole business uh, from that point onwards there. So the documentation was an adequate motivation to overcome the concern about spam there. Let's have a look at another really good one here, which is getting traffic to your website. And here I'm going to use uh, Brian as an example. This is the predecessor to what currently exists, which is Marketing Grader. Um, HubSpot put up this, this site called Website Grader. And it's very cool because all you have to do is literally put in your URL for your company name. And then if you want to, put in the competitor's names. And then this thing would run away for a short while and it would spit out an analysis of why your site was good or not good at search engine optimization. And the other clever thing about it is it would put a score there. Now, I have to say that my, my website, which is what was graded here, got 95, but almost nobody gets 95. The typical score is about 50 to 55 or so. And <clears throat> let's go through why does this work. Well, the first thing that's really interesting about this is this is a free application that gives you a lot of value. So. Because it's free, you spread it virally. You tell other people about the thing, and it gets an, an awful lot of interest from, from your friends as well. The second thing that's cool about this is it starts to um, present the fact that you're an expert in your field. So trust, somebody mentioned trust was very important before you buy from somebody. Within seconds flat, this has started to create trust that HubSpot is a company that knows what it's talking about. And then the other thing that I love about this is the score is actually a trigger. Because if you're like most Americans and you get a score of 55, you want to improve it. So the first question going through your mind is, well, what step next should I take to get a better score? And by the way, I think this concept is very usable in almost all businesses, which is you can grade a lot of the things that you're selling. You can tell the customer you're not up to speed with the best practices in your particular industry, and here's why. And that is an inspiration to cause them to feel like they need to do something about it, particularly if they feel like there's a chance their boss might find out that they haven't got the best score around and that that might be a, a problem for them later on then. So in essence, the quick lessons from that, um, low customer work, high value, score leverages the uh, trigger, uh, builds trust through a clear demonstration of expertise. The last thing that I love about this is that this is a notion of using engineering for marketing. And I really think this is an incredibly potent thing for many of you because a lot of you have developers in your organizations. And developers can build much more valuable things that cause an attraction for customers than marketers can. Marketers are stuck with things like white papers and, uh, and videos and stuff like that. So worth thinking about when you're considering this is, is bring your engineering team in on this problem and have them consider it as well. So the art of doing this well <coughs> is to um, 
even go down to micro steps. A little tiny example I'll give you here. I was sitting with a company called Fetch Notes. That's a textiles company. And I like the entrepreneur there a lot. So I was telling him you know, to, to give me the diagram of his viral loop that he was trying to create. And the first thing he said was, OK, so somebody downloads this app. Um, by the way, Fetch Notes is just a simple to-do list app on your, on your iPhone. You first thing you get them to do is put in a to-do list item, but his problem is that he wants you to use some special features in his product, which is to tag that to-do list item. And the issue there immediately with that very first step is most people are not used to tagging their to-do list items, and they don't really see why they should because there's no benefit apparent to them yet. So my thought for him on that one was, well, your friction is that there's, they don't know they don't know how to do it, and they don't know why they should do it. So what you need to do is put in-app um, messaging so that you can pick up on the fact that they've entered a to-do list item but not entered a tag and put up a little message which says here's why you should tag and here's what the benefits are. And once they've done the, a couple of entries then you want to show them the next thing which is when they get the wow moment which is to click on a filtered list of to-do list items which is get me my work phone calls which is two tags work tag and a, a phone calls tag and that's the moment when the customer gets the wow moment where they're excited about this product and suddenly see some benefit from it. So what we're doing there is we're micro-analyzing each step of your trial, breaking them down, looking at the friction for them, looking at why there's a motivation for somebody to go to the next stage, why there's a problem for them to go to the next stage, and also particularly looking at when do they get the real moment of realization that this trial was successful? What did it need to take for me to feel like this was a successful trial. I will now continue to use this product and recommend it to others then. So that's my, Muriel, my real pitch to you here is map out your process from start to finish. Take that one website where people would have purchased in one thing, figure out the series of mini steps, and for each mini step, connect them to the next mini step, and sit and analyze what the friction is and the concerns are. Write those down. And the moment you write them down, this is a funny thing. I've, I've gotten a lot of people to solve the problem the second they put these things down because they immediately realize, ah, we could do that to solve that issue. Or we could make that a lot easier if we simply. But they're carrying them around in their head, and they think they've done the best they can do. But the moment I make them write them down, magic happens. So there's the, the short amount that I can get covered in this amount of time here. And thanks so much for your time and attention. Thanks so much, David. One of the things that's exciting is to hear that being thought about in a way that I think everybody could approach those various different steps. And uh, I love this last point because um, I guess we must be brothers because we think similarly here on this one. But this is exactly what we were talking about when we did the slippery products analysis, which is how do you make the product simple, low cost, initial, prove value quickly, et cetera, all those other steps. And I couldn't agree more. It's an easy way for startups to make a big impact in the, the go-to-market. So great stuff. There are a lot of great slides that David didn't have a chance to cover. Um, so I'm going to encourage two things. One is, uh, first of all, these are all up on the site, uh, but also he has a great site, a great blog called forentrepreneurs.com, which I encourage you to visit. It has a lot of other great materials on this whole subject. So uh, we're at the end of our agenda. You've all been extremely patient this evening, uh, and I just want to quickly you know, recap by making sure you know this is a big subject, and we tried to cover some of the key points on it. But obviously that we couldn't cover absolutely everything in the marketing and sales cycle and all the different strategies and tactics you could take. We picked off a few key ones. And we ended with the whole discussion about how could you make it all measurable so that you could actually drive this. The ones that we didn't cover have been covered in previous classes before. And for those of you who didn't get it, I encourage you to either come and ask me or, the, or Harvard has them. Here's the handout. And again, you can just go straight to the website if you want to get it. Um, and it'll have all those other case studies on things like channel and distribution, for example, which is a big one. 
um, and one of the most important things that you can drive is a multiplier. Uh, and I have had a bunch of requests from you, uh, which I'll get to. I've got a series of classes coming up in the spring. People have asked me to connect the dots with the business model. They want to talk about whole product, strategic partnering. So I have those case studies lined up for the spring for those of you who want to follow along. Uh, and there'll be a sign-up form for those uh, if you just ask either myself or Jody. So to summarize, the key points to remember from this evening are specifically, think about managing your brand right from the start. That's about you. And if you start how you mean to end, that'll make a big difference. Position to be unique. We talked about some of the ways to do that, not just technology. We talked about how important it is to target and segment. And as you could hear from David and Brian and actually Mark um, talking about that, that's a critical piece. There's a good case study that actually Jameis did with Demandware about how we did that. That's on the website. Uh, and think about driving your marketing and sales cycle. We heard some wonderful examples here of how you can do this in such a disruptive way with inbound marketing and a much more appropriate way for startups than just bludgeoning your customers with heavy, expensive sales calls and, and outbound approaches. So I think that was very exciting. And thank you, uh, both David and Brian and, and, and Mark, uh, for bringing that to life. And Jameis, in particular, for, for, for bringing this to, uh, into focus in terms of how we position correctly with the right brand. But it is ultimately about measuring. So if there were one takeaway I'd ask you to do, this is the one discipline that, that typically gets lost. It's think about how to get results-oriented, measured execution, uh, and drive that through iteration in your, uh, your early days as a startup. Very few people benchmark early on this. And the earlier you benchmark, the more you'll build confidence for yourself and for everybody you want to attract into your business to work with this. And the more easy it'll be, for example, to attract funding. And so just to put this all in perspective, you know, this whole series is about building an enduring company. Go-to-market is, we believe, one of the most important aspects of execution. You can hire the right team. You can have a great value prop. You can have a fantastic vision. But if you don't start executing and connecting with your customers and actually build this piece right, everything, frankly, falls apart. So, Thank you very much to our guests um, who have been so generous with their time and putting these resources together. Um, and also thanks to the Harvard iLab for uh, what's been a tremendous year. Uh, to all the team here who've supported this, we'll be back next year. Uh, thanks to all your interest and support for that. And uh, have a great evening. And please come and join our guests up the front to ask any more questions. Appreciate your time. Thank you.